0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, a movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste are totally a thing. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh,
1: my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and my
0: taste is perfect. I, I think you have spectacular taste, except yeah. when you disagree with me, then you have better than spectacular <laughs> taste.
1: Um uh, Go remember the goal of a good critic. You're not supposed to agree with a critic. Well, not the yeah. You might you, sometimes. You, you might, probably you, will you once might, in a while. But you might. But even if you don't agree with us, mm-hmm. uh, if we've expressed ourselves well, mm-hmm. then we've done our job correctly.
0: If you can see where we're coming from, hmm. even if you disagree, that's the job. Um, so yeah, we're film critics. We take this stuff really, really seriously. We love movies of all different kinds, from the highfalutin. To the uh, to, oh,
1: it was to the mind pollutant, to the mind pollute, <laughs> uh, which is a really
0: fun way of putting it. Um, and that was one of our one of our listeners suggested that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we review all kinds of movies here, critically acclaimed. Thank you everybody for joining us uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed. We are reviewing the new releases: Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, Tick Tick Boom, Licorice Pizza bruised (laughs) thank you Russ Whitehead (laughs) house of Gucci and a castle for Christmas
1: or what was it Russell Whiteman who's who's Mr. Phone? I don't know You know better, Russell than White. Some something. Um, anyway, Russell, the voice of Mr. Movie Phone back when Movie Phone was a, a thing. So many people listening but, probably have no idea what we're talking. I, I don't want to get into the history. We've of Movie given the Phone history right of now. Mr. Movie Phone a long time ago. Anyway,
0: there was a guy. He had a voice. Everyone knew him. He talked about movies. Um, so we're reviewing all of those movies hmm. this week on critically acclaimed. Before we get into any of that, we want to talk about something very very sad that has happened uh, uh, just in the last like twenty four hours. Uh, in the film critic community, uh, where we lost one of our own, mm-hmm. uh, a very esteemed, very respected member of the film critic community, uh, Mr. James Rocky, uh, passed yeah. away at the age of fifty-three. Had a, a
1: had a heart attack, and yeah.
0: um, way 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 too young by any reasonable measure. You no, know,
1: J- James Rocky wasn't uh, like a personal friend of ours. We didn't hang out with him. No, was I, like, I knew he wasn't him well to say hello. Like, yeah, we we said hello a few times, yeah. but uh, um, he was not like a He wouldn't recognize me. Yeah. Uh, But I greatly admired him. Uh, James Rocky was one of those endlessly dignified critics. Mm -hmm. And by dignified, I mean maybe a little snobbish, but always Mm -hmm. well-reasoned, incredibly good writer, and uh, had a principle that he stuck by. Uh, he when uh, if you turned on your phone in the theater, he would not stand by it. Oh my god! If you were
0: in a theater with James Rocky, you knew it.
1: That was the best part.
0: Of, that was, was one of the best things he was about large James and Rocky. Had a loud
1: voice, if, so yeah, he would call you out. If
0: you were in a theater and you know in LA, you know all the 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 film critics tend to see movies at various screenings and. Even if you don't see the same people at every screening all the time, you get used to seeing the same faces. Mm. And some people you know, some people you know only by, oh, here's that guy that always wears that one jacket, that Mm. kind of thing. (laughs) James Rocky, Mm. wonderful man. Uh, always, always
1: well dressed never always
0: a, wore a suit never took, in a t-shirt yeah took the job
1: so seriously always wore a suit regardless of the occasion he, he would he would make fun of people who had words on their shirts <laughs> i was and i was on the i was on the receiving end of that of
0: that of those of those jokes but he would wear suits all the time and if you were at a screening and if you weren't following the code of conduct rocky would he would be the one to say something. Mm. If your phone was on for even a fraction of a second during a movie, James Rocky would just immediately just say in the middle of the movie, please turn your phone off. (laughs) And everyone would be so deeply shamed they would Mm. turn their phone off. (laughs) Delightful. He would also, and this is my favorite thing about James Rocky. Well, No, this is my favorite personal thing about James Rocky. (laughs) Like you, I admired his work very, very greatly. Uh, In the entertainment industry... Stuff starts late. Oh, all the time. almost every time. If you no, I, no, no seven p.m. screening starts at seven p.m. I, it has happened to me on two occasions. In my entire career as a film critic, that a screening started exactly when they said it would, and it has made me endlessly paranoid to this day. You know, not like oh, I've, okay. They're, they're, they're f- trying to keep you on your toes. I yeah. want you to well, show up like, on time oh, every I, time, just oh, in case. Traffic is so difficult at like five o'clock, and like oh, I just got into the parking garage, and it starts at seven, and it's 7.01 and I'm so in so much trouble. And then it almost inevitably starts at seven fifteen, seven twenty. That's pretty much yeah, inevitably. Yeah. But like on two separate occasions, it started at seven, and I was like, no. <laughs> If a movie was more than five minutes late, Rocky would make sure everyone knew about it. He would stand up. He would stand up and he would say like, "Uh, excuse me, this is supposed to start at seven. And the publicist would be like, we know. We're waiting for people to show up. Rocky, you just tell Rocky would just like and if they're professional. They would be here, he
1: like, and he was well. well I got
0: here. <laughs> I yeah. got here on time. And I don't know uh, what everyone else's problem is. So,
1: so he he did have that sort of um, highfalutin air, but in a way that you respect him. Oh, like he was, absolutely. He charming. was the professor you didn't want to upset. No, uh, but you did want to was, impress, and you wanted to impress, and uh, you, if if you ever got a. Eh, you, you were yeah. on his good side, and it was like a Paul
0: Hollywood handshake, you know he and, wouldn't necessarily and, and, go out of his way to praise you, but if he got the handshake but, he did good,
1: but he was not cold. he was actually very warm with his friends i I wasn't one of his friends, but I've been hearing from a lot of his friends and sort of the the banter that they would have with with james rocky um and I admire James Rocky for getting out of the business when he did yeah uh, this is uh James Rocky around twenty fifteen uh Became incredibly concerned with the state of online journalism. Mm-hmm. He thought it was way too much uh, geared toward publicity. And you and I talk about this all, all the time. And we
0: talk about it, I think, largely because James Rocky put it so beautifully into words. Mm-hmm. He did an essay. I'm not remember what publication it was for. But he wrote mm-hmm. an essay about what he called, I think, the Marvel Industrial Complex. It, it was called the Anticipation
1: Industrial Complex. Okay. Well, regardless uh, where, of... uh, he he felt that too much of film journalism, uh, like a substantial percentage of it was geared toward uh, films that hadn't been released yet. And it was about uh, speculation and looking forward to the next thing. And as soon as the film had come out, it was all an excuse to start the cycle over again and look forward to the next thing. Mm. Uh, All of this was, of course, sparked on mostly by like the Marvel Avengers machine, Mm. but just film in general had sort Mm. of started to uh, face that way, and he wasn't comfortable with that. He didn't like it, Mm. so he noped out. He retired. Yeah. He, he said, he said um,
0: I, I don't like what the industry th- is this, doing right now. I'm gone. This I, c- isn't
1: something I can do. This isn't... I can't no... live
0: up to my principles and mm-hmm. do this job. Yeah. That's what so, he decided. So
1: he quit. He quit yeah. film uh, criticism. And uh, became a baker for a while. Yeah. He was uh, doing mail order blondies. for yeah, a while. Yeah, I, a b- a I, I know people who ordered them. Apparently, they were amazing. And uh, I, I ran into him once when he, after he had retired, working at a Williams Sonoma mm-hmm. in a baking goods supply store.
0: And uh, apparently, for the last few years, he'd been teaching
1: English. He was, yeah, I'm sure uh, he was a great he, teacher, he was a high school teacher at the at the end of his career. Real right? fast, if anyone
0: wants to find that article written by James Rocky, mm-hmm. which is a philosophy that is beautifully stated it's so uh, something it is, we've taken to heart. We've taken sure, to heart yeah. and we've talked about it many on occasions and we've tried to credit him whenever it comes up, but it comes up a lot, so we might not have done it as often as we'd like. Um The article it's currently a, it's on a website that no longer exists, but you can find it on the Wayback Machine, akaweb.archive.org. Um it is called it is called the Marvel Industrial Complex Oh, the Marvel, okay. And it was from a website called Movie Mezzanine. And uh, And he talks about stuff that, again, we talk about it all the time that so much of our industry is about what's coming up next, and we're not necessarily talking about the movies themselves, what we have seen. It is all about basically fueling a publicity machine and um And I agree with him on that. Mm-hmm. I agree with him one hundred percent on that. James Rockney was so unerringly principled. That if you disagreed with any small part of his principles, you would inevitably end up bickering with him a little bit. And mm-hmm. I know I bickered with him on more than one occasion. And I will remember to the day I died, a great way he had of shutting down a, a debate at a junket where it, it somehow it turned to politics or whatever mm-hmm. like that. And he just said, hey, listen, people have been debating, you know, these sorts of uh, uh, political and ethical issues for... Hundreds, if not thousands, of years. But uh, I think we could bang it out over lunch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, James Rocky! Uh, yeah, yeah. He uh, he will be missed. he, yeah. he was a, a just a wonderful intellect uh, and one of the few critics who really did stand by his principles. Yeah, what uh, wasn't willing to go like go with the weft of. <sighs> Sort of uh, uh, journalistic trends Yeah, like this is what we have to to, do In order to
0: make money And there's nothing shameful about that About having to write whatever you have to write In order to, you know, keep going in this industry Which frankly is too often devolving away From intelligent, meaningful discourse And you write that whenever you can And sometimes you have to write A little bit of junk here and there You just gotta write up news stories That don't Mm. take a lot of insight uh, but um, Rocky believed in his principles so much That when he realized that he can't really do this Without making those sacrifices He left yeah. And if you can, if your principles mean so much to you That you would do that You yeah. have my endless and undying respect And it is something I'm deeply ashamed of That I don't know if I ever had an opportunity To talk to him after he left the industry To tell him how much I respected him for that Yeah. Not yeah. that everyone needs to leave the industry But if it's what you want to do Do it Live by your code And again I just I admired the hell out of him I disagreed with him About almost every movie We ever saw But I (laughs) admired the hell out of him And again I I understood
1: where he came from And I respected him for that There again, like I said at the beginning of the show, uh, if you're a good critic, uh, people shouldn't be agreeing with you all the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I didn't didn't agree with James Rocky. I, I don't agree with a lot of critics that <sighs> yeah. I re- greatly admire. Um, yeah. I hardly ever agree with Amy Nicholson, but yeah. I like how Amy Nicholson writes, and I like her yeah. opinions, and They're, I like her attitude the, toward film. The perspective is illuminating, mm. isn't mm. it? Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, that's what a great critic ought to bring, and I think that's what James Rocky did. Yeah. So, in
0: any case, if you're unfamiliar with James Rockey's work, we highly recommend you read that one particular article we mentioned, but also look around, find mm. his other work throughout the years.
1: He did a lot of, like, video interviews and stuff as well. Look up if... I'm not sure if you can even find it anymore. Look up his review of Cop Out, uh, the, the Kevin Smith film, uh, because he did not like that movie one bit. And, uh, golly, is it a great piece of writing, if, yeah, if you can find it out mm. there.
0: Anyway, um, uh, thank you for giving us this moment to talk about an esteemed colleague, um, mm. and, um... All I'm going to say at the end of this is, beyond the fact that James Rocky will deeply be missed, um, is uh, if there's anyone in your life who you have something you want to say to and have something, you you just want to tell them you respect them or that they've meant something to you and you have any reason to believe they might not know it, uh, tell them because you never know how much time you have to do so. Mm -hmm. And I have... Really, really been like in in a lot of mourning today because I do feel like I would have liked more time. Yeah. Um, yeah so true. to to because I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know. I okay. I I hope
1: he knew how much I respected him. We we have a lot of colleagues in this field. Yeah. That we admire and respect, and if we're lucky, we get to tell them that to their faces. Yeah. Often uh, Just sort of Trying to be composed Prevents us from doing so You can't yeah. sort of Gush at a colleague At yeah. a press event
0: I've done it a couple of times And a couple of times It ended up like Blowing up in my face And getting really awkward And well, it, I, it, it
1: always feels a little awkward It's like yeah. hey It's like oh like I'm a You're, fan, you're you know? so great. Yeah, yeah you start get, Fanboying I, I, Yeah, out. And there's nothing
0: There's nothing to be ashamed of About that But like Theoretically You're supposed to be In the same business And everything mm-hmm. like that And there's a part of you That's just unprofessional But mm-hmm. Again I'd rather know <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: I would rather know um, so, so in any so, yeah, case it, it,
1: it, Composure prevents us from saying What we would like to say But we to, should just say
0: comments. Um, so t- take a moment if you haven't And um, tell the people that you care about you know What they've meant to you I just mm. want to give that advice Because the older we get The more this is going to come up And that makes me deeply sad mm. And I want to make the most of the time we have So let's review Resident Evil <laughs> Welcome to Frequency <laughs> 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 You know what? This
1: is our life.
0: This is our life. This is how we spend it. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I hope, would rather. I hope, I hope James Rocky would appreciate that transition because I thought that was rather beautiful.
1: <laughs> I think, uh, you know, James Rocky would appreciate that we're going to review this film mm-hmm. rather than write. Think pieces about the stuff around it, right? And like
0: what sequels it yeah, could, what, yield. what sequels yeah. it could
1: yield. Um, that said, this is the seventh film in a series,
0: uh-huh. but it's I a think, reboot. I, I think it's technically like the eighth because there was like a straight to Video animated movie, but oh, the, uh, well, I haven't followed the straight to Video stuff. Resident, the, Evil, uh, Resident Evil, Resident uh, Evil, real fast. If anyone isn't is, is hazy on <laughs> this, I'm going to be as, maybe as quick as I can bro, here bro, just because briefly it's briefly here, real, real fast, long running horror survival video game series. Um, the original game was a real, like, big groundbreaker, like, it was a lot, it set the template for a lot of, kind of, horror games that came after it, um, they were enormously successful, uh, they were initially, uh, very much, like, an import game, and a lot of, like, the dialogue and the, 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 Mm. uh, a lot of the dialogue would be very poorly translated or very poorly acted, and that was kind of part of its charm. It uh, uh-huh. made it feel like you're watching like an Italian horror movie from the 70s that got like kind of like no, no one really <laughs> du- gave a shit Batman, how it was dubbed yeah. in America. Um, <laughs> they're good games. Uh, not not all b- specifically. I know there's, uh, there are dozens upon dozens of them. By I know now, quite I a lot know of that. games in the series right now. And one of the most amazing things about them is that they manage to be scary in large part because of the situational quality. This is mm. what I think video games do that movies have trouble replicating is the plot happens over here in between that, it's all just the experience of being in danger. Mm. And that's something that a good horror game and the best Resident Evil games did very, very well. Uh, I was particularly a huge fan of Resident Evil 2, where you were always on the run from this one giant monster and you can never get comfortable. Um, and uh, so that level of, oh god, this room is full of zombies and I only have three bullets, and what am I going to do? That That level of intensity... The panic. Uh, th- that level of panic is yeah. something that movies don't replicate very well. So, when it came time to make these into movies, Paul W. S. Anderson was brought on board, and Paul W. S. Anderson is not a subtle filmmaker. He doesn't really <laughs> deal in like subtle horror. Even the like... one horror movie he made, everyone likes, is not subtle. It's Event Horizon. It's not a subtle film at all. Um, and, and, and I am on the side
1: of Event Horizon. I like I, that film.
0: More power to you. I'm not a fan, but that's a conversation for another time.
1: But uh, re- remember when that first Resident Evil film was mm-hmm. held as one of the high watermarks when it came to video game to film adaptations?
0: Yeah, because it was, it was reasonably successful. Mm-hmm. It, it did what it did. It immediately moved away from what was going on in the games. The first one kind of like off to the side of what was going mm-hmm. on in the games. And then from like two to six had nothing to do with the games, except for like a couple of characters who would show up in completely different context. Like, imagine, if you will, Warner Brothers said, okay, we're going to reboot the DC superhero universe. Like, ooh, this is exciting. Cool. All right, so it's going to be about this guy named Dave. And uh, this guy named Dave is the most awesome... Totally (laughs) new character. This guy's the most awesome dude in the whole universe. And Superman will show up in, like... Movie four As like The fifth part supporting part tense, guy yeah. <laughs> And like And you're like What the hell is going on Like it's hmm. All this perspective To a lot of the fans well. Of the show seemed, uh, The series seem Really really off But what I will appreciate And if you watch those movies One after another If you binge them As I have Mm-hmm Eventually, you fall under Paul W. S. Anderson's spell. He directed well, the, all but uh, two of them, but they're all under his like maximalist and premature. They're just these really broad, weird, silly, inventive things, and I kind of trying, admire them.
1: Trying to follow the plot and the continuity of those movies uh, is is an exercise in insanity. The, he, there's, there's, uh, he forgets starts, stuff in between movies. Yeah, what what happens like to <laughs> certain characters? What the actual bad guys are up to? Uh, yeah. What they're doing with I think it's in the maybe the fourth movie where it climaxes on like a a, a, a ship out to sea yeah. and they go inside the ship and yet somehow it's this like technological marvel and there's yeah. like mutant dogs and people in tubes inside it's like yeah. what where did that come from uh-huh. what was leading to that what is the function of that thing we never address any no, of no, those no. questions No 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 my my
0: favorite like thing in the Paul Demas Anderson movies uh and again he didn't do 2 and 3 3 is actually quite good 2 is 2 is terrible uh, but at the end well, of Resident that, Evil that is
1: none of them are great. None of them are great, but I would argue that one one's okay. Three's pretty good for what it is. It's the one with the zombie crows and the, the desert
0: post-apocalypse.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. the one
0: that uh, was it was Chuck Russell did that one, right? Russell McKay. No, it was
1: Russell McKay. Russell
0: McKay no, um... did everyone well, knew it was one of the Russells Russell McKay did the third one. It's pretty good for what mm-hmm. it is. And then Polly Rose Anderson did four and five, which are aggressively weird. And then six, which is not great, but whatever. Four and five kick ass, if you ask me. And I like them very, very much. At the end of three, at the end of three, here's 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 the whole series in a nutshell for me. Resident Evil 3 ends with Mila Yovovich's character uh recruiting an army of psychic
1: clones of herself. That she finds in this vast underground lab. It's yeah. after the apocalypse, by yeah. the way. And yeah. yet the, the bad guy the bad guys in this series are uh, a pharmaceutical corporation called Umbrella.
0: Well, technically they make everything, and, but we're focusing okay, on the pharmaceutical well, um, stuff because that's how they made the zombie
1: virus. Okay. Uh, yeah. they, they've made a zombie virus. They've also made a monster virus. and oh, yeah. And you can, so you can be turned into a zombie or a monster. And they're um, trying to clone Mila just And because, they're trying to, yeah, make you, like, you, running tests to make people psychic. And they're even doing this after the apocalypse. Yeah,
0: just in case we need it. And, anyway, they
1: have all of the resources to have like hologrammed meetings around tables oh. when people on the surface are like fighting for water. Oh yeah, that's not a class metaphor because they're they're not, doing nothing with it. They're not feeding off of the people on the surface. No. I, yeah. Anyway,
0: it's just poorly thought yeah. out. But anyway, my point is this: it, the third one ends with Mila Jovovich leading an army of clones of herself, and they're all psychic. Mm. And then in the fourth movie, somehow she made it. I think. Okay, in she, made th- she made it to the bad guys' headquarters. She made to the bad guys headquarters. At the
1: beginning of the fourth film. At the
0: beginning of the fourth film, she and her psychic army of herself storm this giant skyscraper and kill everyone. And then at the end of the opening action sequence, all of those clones that they just teased at the end of the movie are dead, and then it all ends with like her running away and ending up trapped in a prison for the rest of the movie until there's a big climax on a battleship that makes no sense. And then in the fifth one, we find out that Umbrella has made an exact replica of, like, Earth? Her hometown? Of like, of like Tokyo, Las Vegas, Raccoon City, and all these other places and underneath
1: the, and there's underneath they, the surface of something. And also and they they've cloned ship, every other character who died in the series. They've cloned all the characters and there's like random shipping containers yeah. just ska- littering the landscape yeah. and they're full of zombies. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why, why they loaded those things up with zombies. Makes no sense
0: yeah. whatsoever and I admire the shit out of it.
1: I, I admire just... Just the the ballsy gullibility of this series yeah. that that it it's not even bothering to think things out. It, no. It's it's like j- the it's, same guy has written almost the, all of them,
0: and he has he is not keeping track of anything
1: that's happened. It, it's the James Joyce of zombie thrillers. <laughs> just sort of the, this weird spilling out stream of consciousness oh where things connect in ways that only make sense if you're the, the creator, if you're half asleep or you're really drunk on Whitney, something. Whitney, could you please, for the love of God, pitch that article?
0: <laughs> Paul W.S. Anderson's Resident Evil movies were the James Joyce of zombie thrillers. <laughs> I would kill to see that article. Hmm. I would greenlight that in a fucking second <laughs> if I was still your editor. I would greenlight that <laughs> oh, in a second. Stately I would kill to Buck see that. Mulligan praise. <laughs> anyway, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson wrapped up that series with the sixth film,
1: as, as well as these things can be wrapped it, up. They could have kept going for the all final we've film known. was called the final chapter, and 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 maybe the
0: only horror movie franchise in history to actually end with a movie called The Final Chapter. Because Until now. almost every other... Well, it rebooted. That's not the same thing. Right. That's not the same. That story ended. We're, we're, no, no, little, no, 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 no. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to say this right now. If Friday the 13th had ended on The Final Chapter, mm. and then they remade it in 2009, I wouldn't have cried foul. Right. If they had ended with Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday, and then, <laughs> let, it go, and then let it go from there, <laughs> and I would have been fine with it. But both times they kept mm. going.
1: Uh, we we had an all night at the movie theater where I work. We had an all nighter of the Friday the th- or the um, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Ah, nice. And um, I I was projecting with somebody who wasn't really familiar with the Nightmare on Elm Street series, so I really had to stress over and over again that Freddy's dead. The final nightmare is the second to last film in the series. There's one
0: after well, it. Uh, third to last, technically, if you consider Freddy versus Jason
1: and, well, and fourth and, to, and to last, remake, if you include the remake. Include the remake. We, we were only doing the uh, the original run, as it were. Yeah. Uh, Ending with Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That's a great run. That's a great night. (laughs) Those are fun I, movies. I, I would prefer just a double feature of the first and the seventh, because they kind of play off each yeah, that's other. that's all you really, really need. Well. But... All those wild ones in the middle are, are fun to watch. Some mm. of them aren't very good, but... Uh, I would go, I, I I would, enjoy... I think really go one, two, three, uh, seven.
0: I think that's okay. where I'd do.
1: So here here we are back in Resident Evil. We're in Raccoon City, which yeah. uh, was also the site of the first Resident Evil film. Mm-hmm. I know it mm-hmm. plays in heavily with the game series. Uh series I haven't played. I just know the movies. Yeah.
0: I haven't played most uh, of them. I played, them. I played them when they originally came out. I played a couple in the middle there I think Mm. the last one I played to anything near completion Was Resident Evil 4 Which is admittedly a really great game
1: And I know that they've gone so far as there's There's been remakes of Part 7 now And all the rest of that I can't keep up with Uh, it
0: More power to you I know they're great But anyway
1: But here we are with this incompetent piece of crap (sighs) movie uh, Called He's not wrong Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City Uh, Raccoon City Here's what I appreciate about this movie Is that I appreciate the setup. Mm. In that it's sort of like uh, the Umbrella Corporation has essentially sponsored a town. It's like Celebration, Florida, and Disney, or uh, any Motor City, and or or, or just any city where the entire economy
0: is dependent upon like one corporation, yeah, like a a mining company
1: or a, or a, a car construction company. And when uh, that company decides to pull out, the entire city goes to pot. Uh, I wish there had been more of that. Mm
0: -hmm. They also talk about, and this is something that I actually, for initially, I was like, oh, are they actually going to make Resident Evil kind of relevant? That's actually kind of cool. Because one of the storylines, this isn't, I, I don't remember this being explicit in the games, but Umbrella took over Raccoon City a long time ago. They made, they were... They had all their business dealings there. That was the whole economy. Uh, Umbrella is moving out of Raccoon City. It's becoming kind of a ghost town. There's hardly anyone living there anymore. But uh, Raccoon uh, uh, Umbrella has, over the years, poisoned the city's populace. With its various toxic wastes and pollutions and things, and that is something that is a very real thing that happens. If you haven't seen the Todd Haynes movie Dark Waters, I was
1: going to bring that up. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's a movie that flew under the radar. But once you see that movie, you you
1: really it's almost like the anti Todd Haynes movie. But yeah, yeah, it's
0: it works really really well. Or if you saw that uh, underrated uh, John Travolta, Steve Zalian movie, A uh, Civil Action,
1: that's okay.
0: It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but it's a but it's about like how this is something that corporations do. They skirt or ignore or campaign to have uh, uh, environmental
1: very... laws and regulations changed. And yeah, they want to be deregulated because they all well, they want all to, that leads because to they is just them want to pollute, po- poisoning and polluting yeah, it's the atmosphere. Easier, it's easier
0: to pollute, uh, isn't un, it? So unf- they do, and then people uh, suffer and they they get horrible uh, illnesses and they die. But here be they become zombies. Uh, wouldn't
1: it be keen if uh, a result of their poisoning was zombies? It yeah, it's just. Uh, co- corporate uh, malfeasance is what led to it. But it turns yeah, out it that's, wasn't that's just... That's the not, premise, and I'm like, that's you know, actually pretty cool, but so then the movie moves really far away from that's, that. That's not the premise of the film. It turns out the Umbrella Corporation is a pharmaceutical company, and the, yes, they have been working on uh, two different viruses, the T-virus and the G-virus. One turns you into a zombie, one turns you into a monster. One, one virus always tells the truth. One yeah. virus always <laughs> lies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, and uh, they also have been running an orphanage, which is a front for testing on orphans uh, Never mind exactly ex- what their the, the, plan what, was for that We don't get to know what, yeah. the, what the tests entail or what's yeah. going on All we know is that they're spiriting orphans off to some lab somewhere
0: Also, the people of uh, Raccoon City are not very bright And I don't even mean like the people who are losing their hair and are like coughing up blood And mm-hmm. they're not seeing a doctor, because... It's America yeah. who can afford to see a yeah, doctor when you're dying They're
1: impoverished Yeah, that, I, th- I, that
0: I'm fine with but what I'm not okay with Is finding out that the police in Raccoon City Who are mysteriously immune And we're going to explain that away In half a sentence that doesn't make sense um, That they haven't noticed like, you they're haven't not, noticed that not literally really everyone um, who isn't in the police department is losing their hair and coughing up blood and is really and getting interested in the subject of brains?
1: Like, that has not come up at all. Everybody's, like, sort of turning feral. Again, if this was, like, a like a slow burn, kind of George a. Romero sort of thing mm-hmm. where we get to see the town slowly yeah. going insane. Like, the
0: original uh, Salem's Lot. I have never mm-hmm. saw, like, the remake that did with Rob Lowe. But, like, the original Salem's Lot... It's, a, it's very slow by modern standards, but by the time that city is overrun with vampires, mm. you're hard-pressed to figure out when exactly that happened. And that's something that always scares the crap out of me. Mm. You know, that whole thing, like, when did everything mm. turn really horrible? Like, when did the switch get flipped? And it's like, no, we were just constantly turning mm-hmm. the dial.
1: But... But we got way too much plot crammed into this thing. We have uh, the actress Kyla Scodelario, who was in the Maze Runner movies mm-hmm. returning to the town after she had escaped as a child mm-hmm. looking for her brother who is now a cop
0: uh, played by Robbie Amel mm-hmm. um, we've got um,
1: and then the rest are, of and the, the, the rest of the cops.
0: Yeah, the rest of the cast is mostly the cops. You've got uh, Donald Logue basically playing his Harvey Bullock character from Gotham as, um, like, the only, chief of police. Only
1: badly. Donald Logue oh, is yeah. a good actor. He's not acting well
0: here. I don't know what he was he's, told. I think he was yeah. told to just do Harvey Bullock. and well, like the so. material isn't here, and Gotham wasn't that great to begin with. So, but like, he, yeah, he's got nothing to and work and with. he gets
1: to step in, and he may as well have just said, okay, I'm gonna give you exposition badly. Yeah. And then walk off. Uh, there's...
0: There's a uh, the, talk
1: of the kinds of weapons they have and yeah. how they have to go investigate a mansion on the edge of town. Yeah, uh, the characters that's actually all weird. spread out throughout the town and mayhem ensues. That's, that's actually
0: something that's really weird about this. So real, real fast, a couple of people uh, got Hannah John in from Ant Man and the Wasp. He's part of the special ops team that is led by a, a guy named Wesker. And if you know the video games and if you've seen the other movies, you know that when this guy is introduced as one of the heroes, we're going somewhere. And it's going to be it's going to be awkward eventually. Is he
1: a villain later in those? Yeah, the he's series? been a villain
0: in all these things. No. He's the guy with the sunglasses the whole time.
1: Oh, that's the um, the. A Neil McDonough character No,
0: Neil McDonough is a mad scientist character and oh, he's, okay. he's, he's gonna be bad in a couple of different ways You know, you um, know
1: uh, Neil McDonough plays the bad guy Because he's played by Neil McDonough Generally speaking, <laughs> and, yes Neil, Neil McDonough can play decent characters I've lost But he, he, track he plays of, heavies a lot I've lost track of how many times I've seen Neil
0: McDonough as the bad guy In a comedy diehard knockoff <laughs> Like, I've seen him at least two times Maybe three or four I've lost of, like, track of the Paul Blart movies? He was even? in Paul yeah. Blart 2 Okay And then he was in that really awful movie From the guy who are in workaholics
1: oh I'm, it was like it was, sure. oh,
0: what the hell was that thing i forget I don't, want, I don't want to relive it it was terrible neil um, mcdonough's
1: neil is an underrated actor oh, yeah, I think he's, he's, actor. he's very and game him. and he, yeah. he'll show up in a, a crap movie like this and play play what's required of him
0: who could forget his his unforgettable turn in star trek first contact as, as the new guy in the guy. cast who died yeah he was the red shirt <laughs> he <was> we didn't <laughs> even have that in the next generation but they added one in for first yeah. contact and it was neil mcdonough um Anyway, but the weird thing about this adaptation... If you know enough about the games, you're going to get this. And if not, you might... This might help you piece out why this thing doesn't really even work. Like, pacing-wise. The This movie takes the plot of the first game and the plot of the second game... And just smashes them together all willy-nilly. Okay. So, in the first game... uh it takes place at this like isolated mansion and it's basically like a scary haunted house thing. But the more you stay there, you more realize there are zombies and monsters and all kinds of weird shit going on. It's supposed to be kind of isolated and scary. And then the second resident evil took place in the town of raccoon city months later during the zombie apocalypse that happened after the events of the first game. Mm -hmm. And this is all about the cops who are trying to keep the city together. Not unlike the opening of dawn of the dead. Um, When you put them at the same time, it doesn't make any sense. So we've got this town that's starting to be overrun by zombies, but damn it, we really need to send our SWAT team to this one isolated mansion in the middle of nowhere. And we're going to start running through the first game's plot, a a game which takes a little while to introduce the first zombie, and when you do, it's like kind of spooky. It's like in the middle of like this... A big ballroom or something like that and there's a guy like on top of another guy munching I they don't know what he's doing and then it zooms in on him and you are like, oh shit, this is a zombie game holy shit um, they do that scene here uh, but it has absolutely no power when it comes over an hour into the movie and people have been fighting zombies for the last 40 minutes yeah, so this whole yeah, yeah. big introduction of the zombie moment you're not faithfully but, adapting that you're actually well, it's, completely whiffing it it's because it has a... no power
1: well, it's not just that it has no power, it's that the character had already seen things scarier than that at that point in the movie. This is... Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the audience had it. I'm, I'm not sure a, the character specifically had, because they m- ran off on that maybe, mission early on.
1: Maybe this was some sort of misguided way to include iconography from the game. Oh, I, I, uh, they,
0: they really tried. I do appreciate what the, I, the, that... Idea, but they completely fuck up the execution.
1: Whether it was or not, it's just incompetent filmmaking. Yeah, uh, where we they forget the filmmakers are forgetting where the characters are in relation to one another. Yeah, the kinds of things they've seen at that point in the movie Mm -hmm. and what they need to achieve or where they need to go Mm -hmm. in order to move the movie forward. There's a lot of just basic movie beats are absent from
0: this film. And there's a lot of just basic visual clarity that we're not missing. This is a very poorly photographed movie.
1: It's Yeah, there's there's no lighting, so you can't tell what some of the interiors yeah. look like. I mean, there's this, lighting, but
0: it's very minimalist, and I think it's supposed to be scary, but it's actually just hard to follow. This
1: might have been a cost-saving measure. I'm sure it was uh, part well, of it. Well, I mean, not having more lights is a cost-saving measure, mm-hmm. but... Uh, keeping a lot of they the stuff, were, keeping a
0: lot of your movie in shadow. That's something happened in the first Matrix. why it kind of felt like a film noir. Yeah. Is because they didn't have a budget, so they were like, okay, let's throw a lot of the shit the shit in uh, shadow. I,
1: I think they had to sort of hide the the hide the fact that their production design was pretty crappy. Uh, mm-hmm. there is a scene in this movie where a helicopter, uh, that the cops have, uh, is beset by zombies and it crashes, and it crashes into a mansion. Uh-huh. And you would think that would start a fire and burn the mansion down Mm -hmm. or cause...
0: Affect its structural integrity or at the very least alert people in other rooms and And, they uh,
1: don't know what happened. People in other rooms don't hear it and the people who witnessed it happening watched it crashing through the window like hide behind a desk and when they stand up, there's no damage in the room whatsoever. It's just a mansion room with a hole in the wall and a burning helicopter in the middle of it.
0: There are fight scenes with zombies where you can't actually... Be certain that the people fighting the zombie and the zombie are in the same room.
1: And then they start in, so then weird. they start introducing just like in the Paul W. Sanderson movies, they start introducing these weird concepts that have no uh, no precedent whatsoever. Mm,
0: they're not grounded Look, in anything that involves character, or even the plot, really, that yeah, we're like, seeing.
1: Like, right near the end, they say, okay, we need to get on that train. Remember that train that they built years ago that leads out of town?
0: No. No, that wasn't
1: mentioned before.
0: You could have and really done something with that. Yeah. Then there's
1: a hard edit, and they're in the train. Like, there's mm-hmm. not a, a good establishing shot of them no. finding this mysterious train station. They're just in it. And those kinds of, like, little jarring edits yeah. all compiled together leave you completely disoriented yeah. and uh, twiddling your thumbs and I've, I've seen some people realizing that
0: you're watching a big piece of crap. I've seen some people defend this movie, at least on this ground, which is at the very least it's trying to be faithful to the game. And my argument for that is this. Faithfulness is not in and of itself a virtue. You can be completely unfaithful to something and make a good movie, and you can also be completely faithful to something and make a bad movie Mm -hmm. if you do it poorly. This movie does it incredibly poorly. There's a couple of things that I, there's a couple of people involved who will be like, it's not their fault. Some of the cast is not good. Some of the cast is perfectly fine, and if this were a better written movie, I'm sure they would have been great. I think Hannah John Kamen is a really interesting presence, Mm -hmm. and I would very much like to see her in more things. I know they're a hardworking actor. Good. Mm -hmm. This is not the star vehicle for you. But please be a star Because you're really, really cool You even somehow managed to make the awkward re- uh, uh, Reference to the Jill Sandwich scene From the Resident Evil game Almost kind <laughs> of work So, kudos to you <laughs> Kaya Scodelario, you uh, get very uh, little to do in this movie But you're a brilliant actor, she, uh, hope to see more H- of you
1: Hena John Kamen's gonna do fine Because she signed on to play Red Sonya.
0: Oh, that's yeah. badass, okay, yeah, great She's, she's okay. gonna play that's, Red Sonya in yes, an up, thank upcoming you. Red Sonya movie uh, I've seen Avon Joja uh, Be good in other things <laughs> <laughs> okay. He's right here. He plays like the pretty boy rookie. And there's actually like the one giggle I got out of this movie that was actually intentional was there's a bit at the end where, like, they're getting on that, they're on that train, and everyone's just sort of like, okay, let's see who made it. Hey, the rookie. And Ivan Doge is like, yeah, I'm surprised too. Uh, <laughs> and like, even Eamon Doge is just like, yeah, I think they forgot to write my death scene. I think it just <laughs> showed up. He's <laughs> a character who's important in the games, and you kind of know he'll make it because of that, but by all rights, no, he should be dead. All horror rules dictate otherwise. Um, so, like, the cast is, is, some of them are doing their best, some of them are completely out of their depth uh but yeah this is hard to look at not hard it's hard to watch because it's literally hard to look at i don't get to say that very often it's so weird because we're so used to a certain baseline competency and it, Like, it's just like, if, okay, if well, it's, like, it's not of, good, but, like, I can tell what's going on. If,
1: even if it were that when sort that of is boring, removed, it's so weird. That boring, green, murky photography that's really mm. hip right now, or that blue filter yeah. that was hip before that. Yeah. Yeah. They have uh, a
0: magenta version of that yeah. sometimes, too, which doesn't yeah. help anything.
1: Those aren't necessarily good aesthetics. I, no. I'm not very fond of any of those things, but I prefer that because they at least include with it an a element of visual clarity. Yeah. Uh, when there's no clarity and I can't tell what's going on, uh, then I'm not going to enjoy mm. the film. And and- I'm, but, I'm, but, I'm, but let me make something clear.
0: When we say we can't tell what's going on, I don't mean we don't get the gist of it. We understand they fought zombies and then they got oh, out yeah. of the room. I want to be able to actually see everything that happens in there to the extent that I know how they fought the zombies, I know how they escaped, because otherwise you're just giving me like, a sentence with no hmm. with no adjectives in it like you're not telling the story you're summarizing it i want to see the story play out and you can't even do that visually here
1: so there because you can't see it there's no element of fun gore mm-hmm. or violence uh there's no actual fear in it nothing in this film is scary there's no. there's a um there's a, a kind of uh, creepy uh, monster person who has like a mask on the side of their face that was uh, kind of kind of cool looking. But
0: yeah. there's a, there's a there's a one bit at the beginning where. Um... Kaya Caudilario is attacked by uh, some of her brother's neighbors, which is fine. Mm, yeah, it's certainly not bad.
1: It's just sort of a, like a it's really, okay, a really and... a really silly looking monster with a visible brain that yeah. shows up. I, I know that's a big uh, a yeah. monster from the game. Yeah, there's some big monsters mm. in here, and you'll, you'll recognize them from you know mm. the games. But yeah, this but, is. But, um... there, but there's nothing here to enjoy. Yeah. It is not enjoyable. It's actually rather, uh, in terms of quality, quite repellent. I, yeah. it, I see people. Uh, I've read some pretty positive reviews exactly. about this one, and uh, it, I think I think
0: it's mostly just they like that it's about the games. That's all they asked maybe, for. Maybe and that's so. and That's all and, uh, they need. But I, I need more I suppose, than that. I
1: suppose so. I would prefer to have a good film, and this yeah. is not that. When all said and done, the Paul
0: W. Sanderson movies, which again are not good. In mm-hmm. fact, I would say Resident Evil Apocalypse, which he, like, I think he produced and maybe this wrote but didn't direct second that one. Film, yeah. He didn't direct Resident Evil Apocalypse, but he was definitely, like, still controlling the franchise. Mm. Uh, Resident Evil Apocalypse is even worse than this movie. <laughs> I, will say, I will say that. I will shout that from the rooftops that Resident Evil Apocalypse is worse than Resident Evil, um, Welcome to Raccoon City. It's but, been a uh, while well since I've seen it. I, but, I, okay. I, I will stand by that. Neither of them are good. That's All not right. It doesn't celebrate Welcome to Raccoon City. I come here not to praise Welcome to Raccoon City, but to To bury it. I mean, to bury it. Um, <laughs> But as much as it was frustrating to see this franchise with a lot of potential to turn into interesting movies be turned into something that had almost nothing to do with that mm. material, and be like, oh, they're kind of like wasting the opportunity to turn the source material into something cool by just doing using it as like a very thin mm. inspiration for something completely different that could have become well, something else. I understand that
1: frustration, cool. but those movies are still more entertaining than this. Yeah, here's. Uh, the frustration for many years has been um, that video games are difficult to adapt into film because mm-hmm. it is done well so infrequently.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and I, I guess I can agree with that to a point because I've seen so few good ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, in recent years, we've had a few good ones. I really mm-hmm. liked Werewolves Within. Werewolves Within kicks ass. Um, that might be the best film based on a, Certainly a, the best a live action thing. one I've seen. Uh, we saw an anime called uh, Professor Layton and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame. Which, uh... Uh, no, it
0: was uh, uh, Professor Layton and the Eternal Diva. And the That's Eternal Diva, oh, okay. That's what we saw. Oh, wait,
1: I was, th- I was mixing that up with uh, uh, Detective D and the Mystery you of the Phantom were. Flame. You yeah. uh, were. Yes. That uh, movie for... was
0: barely released in America, but it is very, very good.
1: It, it's very good. It's just a good yeah. anime uh, detective yeah. story. And we've had a couple uh, of big, dumb, there's... fun ones.
0: Rampage is a Rampage lot of Rampage is pretty good. That... I liked that uh, new version of Tomb Raider. Oh, it
1: was. Uh, it was it... It's a
0: perfect, it's a three star action movie, <laughs> but it was a Oh. Solid three stars. I enjoyed I, it just fine.
1: I think it's no, no better or worse than uh, the. young. The was it Jan DeBond who did the original? One? Uh,
0: Jan Bond did the second one, Simon West did the
1: first. Simon, uh, but yeah, the Angel I, I think it's films. about as good as the, the Simon West film. Um, and uh, I've maintained that the reason it's been so difficult to uh, sort of mine video games for effective cinema is because a lot of video games take their premises from B-movies to begin with. Yeah. So by the time you get back to making it into a film... Uh, you've made a copy you, of a copy. You've made a copy of a copy. Uh, the other reason is, these video games... How many Resident Evil games are there? Like, 22? Oh, there's a I, lot of them. In the main franchise, uh, there's at least 10, I think, now. Uh, the, the myth arc and the stories of these films are incredibly elaborate now. There's hundreds yeah. of characters in some of these video game series and they you know, these yeah. uh, hundreds of hours of cutscenes and video gameplay to expand on all of these myths and they're so expansive that when it comes time to make them into a film, the filmmakers get a little zealous and try mm-hmm. to include too much into yeah. a ninety to two hour ninety minute to two hour film. hmm Uh, And as such, you get bad storytelling.
0: Yeah, I I feel like a lot of these games that we're adapting would be better served, and some of them are doing this, uh, as TV series. I haven't watched watched The Witcher. I know a lot of people really like The Witcher. I hear it's good. It's probably good. But that's another example where this game is gigantic. Hmm. There's a lot of material in there. Makes more sense to not feel like they need to condense it. I feel as though the best video game movies we've ever had, with, again, there's some. there are some good video game movies now, but they're not the most famous ones. The best video game movies we've ever had are movies which are taking their storytelling inspiration from video games, but aren't necessarily based on a specific video game. Oh, there you go. For example. Like War Games, that sort of thing. War Games, well, okay, that's actually, okay, you're, when you're talking about movies that are about video games, we have had a few really, really good ones. War mm. Games kicks ass. Uh, what was it? Um, what's that one with Dabney Coleman? Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger is really good. Um, there was a there's at least one. There's a couple more, but there a couple more. A Tron. Tron Legacy mm-hmm. at the very least is pretty neat. Um, but I think there's actually some filmmakers now who are starting to realize that there are storytelling mechanics or storytelling language that is in a lot of video games that can be used to make exciting cinema. And the movie that I think is the best video game movie that we've had. That just happens to not be based in a video game is Sam Mendez's
1: 1917. Oh, there you go. Which uh, Sam Mendes has said that he took a lot of his visual cues from Red Dead Redemption. Uh, yeah, video games that his his kids were playing. His kids are playing Red
0: Dead Redemption, and Red Dead Redemption is a game with, you know, basically you're just your camera's like hovering behind your protagonist in one long unbroken shot, and they go throughout all of these planes and they go on all of these adventures, and it's just one ongoing storyline. Uh and he has openly said in interviews that that was part of his inspiration for how he told the story of that movie 1917, which like I'm, I'm, is quite good. If, it's, if, if it, this,
1: yeah. yeah, I was looking at these games, like, if this were cinema, this would yeah. be a, a single take. Yeah. I'd have to choreograph. Wait a minute, I could do that. I, I could, could make do. this... I know. can
0: make a World War One story about someone crossing over into mm. enemy territory and going you, on a you, series you, of uh, mini-adventures. Using a, a video game aesthetic. Yeah, and then building up to one giant action sequence mm. and everything, and there are even mechanics in that of like, uh, like, oh, well, it's a good thing he got the milk at the earlier stage because now he knows how to like keep the screaming (laughs) baby quiet so he'll survive later. These are video game mechanics. That movie is a great video game movie. That's a movie that knows how to turn video game stuff into good movies. And there are others as well. Run, Lola, run is another good example of this. Or you
1: die and come back with a new
0: life. Yeah, exactly. These are to solve a problem. Like, That's a great video game movie. It just happens not to be based on a video game. We're getting so caught up in trying to adapt the plots of games, which many of which don't have great plots, that we're missing the fact that video games are an experiential medium more than they are an objective storytelling medium where you're sitting on your couch watching something passively play out. Your immediate involvement is necessary, and cinema is totally capable of that, but you have to make a point of it, Mm. because otherwise you're going to fall back on using language that is just not going to tell a potentially not very interesting story well. You have to really go all in.
1: A a lot of the types of movies that, again, I'm I'm not, like, sort of deep into video game lore. I I play uh, (laughs) Tetris. which I've heard they're trying to adapt Tetris into a feature film. That was a long time well. ago, but yeah, it's been a while since I've heard uh, an update on that one, but yeah. But it, it seems to me that the kinds of films that a lot of these video games are taking their inspiration from aren't massively complicated, myth-heavy kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, one I like to go back to is a video game called Metroid, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, originally came out in the 1980s. Yeah. And it's about... a. a st- like Sort of like an explorer soldier in a supersuit and they're yeah. exploring this hostile territory that's full, abandoned of humans, mm-hmm. now full of uh, yeah. wildlife and wild alien fauna, and mm-hmm. they have to eventually fight these monsters and destroy and, uh, and, the, the evil creature yeah. that's been... And explore every there, single yeah.
0: catacomb in a really mm-hmm. complex maze of... You know,
1: uh, in, in a lot of... It, its setup isn't like this, but in, in terms of like what you're doing, it's taking a lot of cues from aliens. Yeah. Where there's this creature in this sort of science fiction space and you have mm-hmm. to fight these monsters. Very much so. Okay. Only this time you have, you have weapons. Yeah, it's more like aliens, but yeah, yeah regardless. Yeah. Uh, it, aliens. It's, it's taking yeah. its cues from like that kind of a science fiction. Film. Sure. Uh, there are many Metroid games and now they've expanded like what the background mm. of the character is and you know, who she works for and like mm. the function of the suit and what the Metroids do and all of that's like. Not so interesting, but that's the kind of thing they would have to key into to make a film. Mm-hmm. If you're ever going to make a Metroid film, yeah, you have to make it more like Alien. Yeah, just rip off Alien. There are yeah. a lot of alien ripoffs. Just do another one. Yeah. <laughs> Just make it claustrophobic. So, yeah, make it and really close. You, you and don't like, even yeah. have to have a lot of dialogue. Just have so, you know a lot of really weird, interesting interiors. Uh, a good uh, action sequence or two with monster fights. Keep it really kind of low key, mm-hmm. and that way you're s- circumventing a lot of what the video game has introduced into B movie elements that are, in terms of filmmaking, a bit of a distraction, but in yeah. terms of gameplay, are. Completely necessary. Agreed.
0: Well, in any case, we have a lot of growing up to do, don't we? Um, well, Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City. Um, you were not very good. No. And I'm ready no, to. No, I'm very, no. this, this. I'm is, very eager to move on. This, this to is one of my
1: film. least favorite movies of the year. It was, it was such was a rough, sit. such a miserable experience. It's a rough set.
0: Um, okay, let's move on. Let's move on to a movie that I, I feel comfortable saying that we both really, really liked. Okay. Uh, and this is a movie that actually technically came out last week. I didn't have time to watch it, we really wanted to talk about it together, so we're covering it this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Lin-Manuel Miranda's Tick, Tick, Boom, which is based on an autobiographical musical by, is it Jonathan Larson? Jonathan Larson. Jonathan Larson, yeah. not John Larson. Jonathan uh, Larson, who is perhaps best known as uh, the uh, writer and composer
1: of the musical Rent, which basically owned the 90s. Uh Rent and Jonathan Larson... Uh, well, first of all, Rent uh, was a runaway, huge, huge runaway hit when it yeah. came out in in the mid-90s. It was and, bold.
0: Um, it was nothing really like it. It, it, it really broke down the... a lot of doors. It's, yeah, was, you, know, it, it, you can rock, look at it rock, now and say yeah. like parts of it aren't that great, but at the time, yeah. it was really, really trailblazing.
1: And yeah, like the rock, rock musical is an opera. The band was yeah. on stage with all of the characters. Mm. And uh, it was about... Uh, young Gen Xers in their mid to late 20s mm. uh, trying to make it in the arts in New York in the, in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, but rather and than have whole,
0: this kind of like romanticized bohemian ideal... It, those it, it, I, is,
1: it is based on Puccini's La Boheme.
0: Exactly, but yeah. like the I, the irony though is that these people who are trying to chase down this beautiful artistic ideal and live by their principles are living in a world where they can't Pay for anything because no one's making any money off of this, and also because it's in the '80s or the early '90s, uh, a lot of people in their community are dying from AIDS. Yeah,
1: Uh,
0: and that's uh, that's that's mm -hmm. that's that's tough material to tackle, and Jonathan Arslan did a really good job of it for the most part.
1: uh, It it's. Featured a a lot of queer characters. It featured notably a trans character, which Mm -hmm. was uh, in in a musical of that size was uh, very uncommon. uh, Yeah, not not entirely common. Uh, It's Jonathan Larson in those kinds of attitudes of fighting this vague sort of injustice against your generation with art. But your own art, not corporate art, is one of the central tenets of Generation X. Yeah. Uh, it is it is a, a generational tome. Mm-hmm. It, it has a thesis to it that I think a lot of people that age kind of uh, bought into. And um, Jonathan Larson is one of the key figures in this philosophy of fighting uh, fighting the world's injustice. With uh, very, very personal art projects that uh, goodness cannot be co-opted by the commercial world.
0: And so you can imagine uh, with an ethos like mm. that and uh, with material like this, mm. uh, Jonathan Larson didn't find success super easily. No. It wasn't like everyone's no, just no, no. like, and,
1: please make more of that. Broadway and, uh, needs it. Uh, like it was an uphill battle mm. for him. And Tic Tic Boom is based on, not on the making of Rent, but on the making of his initial... Okay, the, the timeline's a little weird. Uh, he yeah. was working on, for many years, uh, a science fiction musical called Superbia.
0: Which is kind of loosely based on 1984. Yeah, and
1: yeah. Uh, and it, it does sort of... Pred, Superbia predicted, uh, like, the 15 minutes of fame, like the Instagram era, where everybody's yeah. sort of interested in aesthetics. Not so novel an idea, but it ended up coming true. Mm. And... That when that project didn't come to fruition in the way he wanted, he ended up writing a musical about how it didn't come to fruition in the way he wanted, and that became Tick, Tick, Boom.
0: And then uh, Tick, Tick, Boom. I've never seen Tick, Tick, Boom, like, performed. Mm. Uh, This is my first introduction to any of it. Mm. Uh, But I'm curious. Have you seen Tick, Tick, Boom? Just the
1: music.
0: yeah. Okay, okay. Because one of the the interesting mm. things about it is, although the movie doesn't lead up directly to him making Rent, it does understand that that's what's looming large in his future. And so you do see over the course of this film, the seeds getting planted for him writing a musical about more grounded things Hmm. and more maybe worldly things than... His own personal experience. And, and, also you know? how,
1: well, and also how personal Rent was to him. Exactly. He's so, writing about himself and his friends. So if
0: you know about Rent, if you're familiar with Rent, you're going to pick up on mm. a few, some of the foreshadowing here. And I think it's actually done pretty elegantly compared mm. to a lot of other it's, movies that try to foreshadow these kinds of things. And they can be really awkward mm. about it and make it really kind of no,
1: cheesy. I, uh... I saw a film just recently, I'm going to review it soon, called uh, Being the Ricardos, about uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and there are a few scenes in that movie, uh, without sort of looking ahead too far, about how... um, there's a sense of fatalism or destiny to what's gonna go yeah. on in, in Lucille Ball's life. Of and I feel this is like
0: going to happen, yeah.
1: we know that Jonathan Larson is gonna be successful. In fact they open the film with that. They mm-hmm. say Jonathan Larson won Tony's and a Pulitzer Prize for this musical, here's what he was what was going on before all of that. Yeah. Uh and so we do get the sense that things are gonna turn out okay for him, but there's it was a long journey getting there. And that's uh yeah. and the thing that marks this film and marks not just Jonathan Larson's life, but marks this movie and marks Lin Manuel Miranda's passion for it is Jonathan Larson's own passion for music and for writing music and for songwriting and mm-hmm. for musical theater. Uh, there's a scene early on where he's having a party in his little closet of a, a New York apartment. Mm-hmm and somebody says, hey, you're Jonathan Larson, what do you do? And he very casually, completely confidently says, I'm the future of musical theater, John. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Like, that's how he introduces himself. I love, and I yeah. love the character. There's a character,
0: he's only in this scene, and he shows up, like, really briefly at mm. the end. But there's a guy who is clearly, like, at a Bohemian party, he's, he's, and it does not belong here. Like, it's mm. not his people. He, like, works in he's some, like...
1: He's like, like in... the jock among all the theater yeah, nerds. S-
0: someone brought their boyfriend, and their boyfriend is, like, <laughs> works in real estate or whatever. And he thinks these people are super neat. And he's just like, so what do you do? Oh, yeah, I work, I work in real estate. Mm. I, uh, I I move properties over on the East End. What do you do? I'm the future of musical theater. Wow! <sighs> <laughs> like com- the guy he's with is rolling his eyes because he knows Jonathan you know, Larson, but
1: this guy is completely sold, and it's uh, so charming. Jonathan Larson is played by Andrew Garfield, giving yeah. uh, maybe his career's best performance. Well, he was, he's still young, so he's far. still young so far, uh, but he's he, he was good he's here, really good because he's doing yeah. Jonathan Larson, but he's getting all of the emotional parts really, really well. Yeah, um, and the the film is staged in such a way where we're getting to see a staging of Tick Tick Boom, mm-hmm. and then a flashback to the. Events that inspired the musical number within Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah. And there's a lot of overlap because the people he's staging it with are friends of his who were involved in the story while he was making it. Yeah, I really Um, like
0: uh, Vanessa Hudgens uh, mm -hmm. plays a character who helps put on his performance of Superbia over Mm -hmm. the course of the film. She's not a huge character. She's actually kind of, she's almost overcast. Because yeah, you recognize like, Vanessa Hudgens, you kind
1: of expect her to be a bigger I'm, deal I'm, in the film. I'm wondering why, I don't know why Vanessa Hudgens I, I, isn't a gigantic star. She's like, so
0: fucking talented. <laughs> and she's great in this. She's got like two fucking banger numbers in here. Mm. One is a one is a duet with uh, uh, the, with Andrew Garfield, mm. which is a basically a relationship Let, fight like, song. Let's
1: not fight tonight, kind of fight yeah, song. yeah. yeah. She's
0: epic in it <laughs> and that is this is no like uh this is no slight to alexandra ship who plays jonathan larson's real life girlfriend hmm. uh in the movie but there's a part of you where it's just like should vanessa hodgins have been playing that role what are we doing here she's so talented um andrew garfield apparently i, I was reading a story about this apparently um Lin-Manuel Miranda saw Andrew Garfield in something, Mm. and he was like, this guy'd be good Jonathan Larson, and he asked a mutual friend if (laughs) if Andrew Garfield can sing. Mm. And they said, he sings like an angel. And he says, okay, cool. And then Lin-Manuel Miranda left, and apparently that friend then called Andrew Garfield and said, hey, can you sing? (laughs) 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 And apparently he couldn't when they Mm. cast him here. And
1: I will say this, he's not He's no Sinatra like he doesn't have he, this he like was, well, beautiful This is the kind of like yeah. he, he's not meant to give those kind of barn burner yeah. Ethel Merman kind of show stopping numbers in this yeah. he's it he's a real guy and when yeah. he sings the way he sings it's really believable yeah. and yeah. There's... he knows
0: music he's a key he he, obviously he can hold a tune he's very very talented <clears throat> and, but and all of he's this, not uh, the, he's not the star no, star all, you know all like, of this. Crescendo- no bernadette yeah. peters all
1: know? of this crescendo is in a really wonderful number where in sort of this semi-fantasy sequence he's wandering yeah. in the park and finds a piano there and yeah. sits down and one of you know one of his uh proclivities is he can make up a song on the spot and write a song about anything and uh he sings a song that made me just cry. Oh, yeah. he just heard like, some really terrible news about a friend He gets some terrible yeah. news about a friend, and he sings a song about sort of the history of their friendship. Yeah. And it's just utterly heartbreaking, and he sings it incredibly well. He doesn't have to burn the house down. He just has to be sincere in that moment, and yeah. he is. Yeah, he's very good. Uh, this Jonathan Larson and Lin-Manuel Miranda and this film, and me, uh, <laughs> all have a deep abiding passion for musical theater. They respect it and they love it. And the thing that keeps Jonathan Larson coming back to this kind of low rent bohemian lifestyle where he lives in this really <laughs> crappy apartment is not the promise of success, mm. but the promise of keeping of being able to keep on doing it. Uh, and so uh, that's what Lynn manuel Miranda is making a story about is this Passion, this deep-abiding passion for wanting to tell your own story and wanting to be a part of musical theater—you uh, can tell that uh, he loves musical theater because of the diner number. Uh, oh, and, yeah. and uh, if Oh my god! If you're a theater kid, uh, this is going its like Avengers Endgame. This oh yeah! This where... is this,
0: this theater number. It's it's an homage to Stephen Sondheim's mm. uh, Sunday in the Park. right? Sunday in the Park with George. Sunday in yeah. the Park with George, uh, and uh, it's basically him just singing about working in a diner in New
1: York. But, and and, and how, how hectic that is
0: Eventually there's this, it's this, The idea is that someone isn't there that day to work hmm. And so they're understaffed And if you've ever been understaffed At a retail job or a food service job On a busy day hmm. You know that's hell Because every fucking person who copes there Is an entitled asshole <laughs> No matter how reasonable they think they're being and On a normal day Maybe you could laugh it off When you're the only one there to serve 200 people They're all assholes hmm. But what I'm noticing as the scene is moving on And he's just (laughs) filling out the tables I'm like is that B.B. Newworth? <laughs> like, why is B.B. and B. Like, Is B, is she
1: playing B.B. Newworth?
0: And then it's like, what is it? It's wait, a, is that
1: Cheetah Rivera? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a
0: Joel. Um, Joel uh, Gray. Joel Gray is in it as mm-hmm. well. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, wait a minute. Aren't both of those women from like Hamilton? Like the original cast of Hamilton? Mm-hmm. And then. Like, there's That's Philippa Sue from Hamilton. Yeah, like, yeah. Holy <laughs> fucking shit. And then, of course, they all come in together and there's this huge number. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of people who I don't even recognize. Well, you, cr- you mentioned Bernadette Peters; Bernadette, she's in there too. Bernadette Peters just oh, yeah. shows up, and I love that. There's a moment like of all of these people, and these are all fucking legends. <laughs> Andrew Garfield has like I'm sorry, we have to stop the movie for a second. Bernadette Peters is here. Everybody. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we, we all get a round of applause. Bernadette, Bernadette Peters, Bernadette, everybody, Bernadette
0: yeah. Peters just showed up. I don't care if she does nothing. Bernadette Peters, <laughs> you pay respect. <laughs>
1: I, I got I got to see Bernadette Peters in, in a Stephen Sondheim musical, which is it? I saw her in Follies.
0: Oh my God, <laughs> Bernadette Peters is I, uh, one of the greatest musical theater people I, of all time. As
1: as an anniversary trip, I went to go. I got to go to New York with my wife, and um, and we saw Follies, which is not a film you, uh, not a musical yeah. you want to watch when uh, <laughs> on your anniversary or with a spouse because it's all about how marriages are falling apart and everybody's getting divorced. Yeah, uh, it's a good musical. But yeah. not 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 good to bring a spouse to perhaps which uh, which actually brings us to an interesting point mm. here one of the and
0: this is weird timing uh, one of the the oh, yeah. storylines
1: this, this, uh, yeah one this of the film recurring isn't lines, make you cry yeah.
0: beforehand it's gonna one of the recurring storylines in this movie mm. is that Jonathan Larson has had a sort of a, a not really a mentor student, but just he keeps brushing up against Stephen Sondheim mm. and Stephen Sondheim it was and still is. Uh, one of the greats of musical theater, just period. Um, still alive when the movie was being made. Passed away this last week at the age of like what ninety three. He was, was ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, and he's played in the movie by Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford's wonderful. Uh, and you can just see this is just like this incredible like respect they have for Sondheim and how there's this amazing bit where he he performs like some of his music at like this. Little private show where a lot of people from the industry, the musical industry, are there to just sort of see young talent and mm-hmm. give them some feedback. And, and sometimes interested in and Jonathan uh, Larson. Uh, so he keeps but,
1: showing up at these workshops. But, but Richard
0: Kind is also a wonderful character actor. <laughs> Richard Kind is here and he's like being a complete douchebag and he's just like, Yeah, I just don't know what your play is. Like, what is it trying then, to be? Is it rock? Is it opera? And, Sa- and there's someone like,
1: saying, well, I, I liked it. I like the blending of genres. And, and Richard Kind will like, like well, backpedal
0: immediately. It, it, it was just, I was like, well yes, obviously it's doing that. We're obviously saying the same thing, but in a different way. And I'm like, oh my fucking God. <laughs> I've known that guy. Well we all know that. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Um but it's the the way that Steven Sondheim is like sort of Woven throughout this movie is actually really quite beautiful, and there's that all ends in like a a phone call, which it turns out that phone call is actually Stephen Sondheim. Oh. Bradley Whitford was unavailable when they needed to film that that audio, and Stephen Sondheim said, "I'll do it." God. Fucking amazing. <sighs> One of the things I really love about this movie first, it's, it's all good. The performances are great. The the uh, you know the the staging's really solid. Um, but. I'm watching this movie, and it seems like it's all building to this one big performance of Superbia, which is finally going to get Jonathan Larson noticed. It's finally going to get him out there. It's finally going to get him the opportunities that he needs. And he's putting it all on the line here. Mm. Like, his power is getting turned off in his apartment. He's losing his relationship.
1: is falling apart. And he's putting everything in this. Complete a song by, like, by candlelight by mm-hmm. in, long, in longhand. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's just he's putting it all on the line. I'm, putting, I'm holding nothing back. If this doesn't work, I'm, I'm over. And I'm watching, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I'm I'm watching this on Netflix, because this is where it is, and I realize that there's like 40 minutes left in this movie, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? And I love how this movie is structured, and how it builds to this natural crescendo, and then other things naturally happen afterwards, and you realize that that's not what life is like. Mm -hmm. And there's an incredible speech, I don't want to ruin it for you, but there's an incredible speech by Judith Light.
1: He plays his agent.
0: Judith Light is another fucking national treasure we do not talk about enough, by the way. Um, but Judith Light uh, gives a speech about this is what being a writer is like. Hmm. And it's perfect. It nails it. It's honest and kind of it's unromantic, like, but also kind of hopeful,
1: too. It's, like h- it's harsh yet encouraging. Yeah, it's,
0: it, she nails it beautifully. But then like, you realize that like everything he thought he was putting into this was this isn't the end of his career this isn't all he has to say there's more to this and you realize that after this is done and after he has done the assignment life continues mm-hmm. and he actually still has to deal with all that stuff he put on hold to do this and that is some beautiful structuring yeah. right there. that's a mm. great story that is here is the perfect three act <coughs> movie oh gosh you done. It yeah, is the perfect three act movie, and then we tacked on a fourth act, <laughs> and the fourth act makes it.
1: You, that's it, not a good movie without that. It's yeah, like an okay it, movie, it's, but it's not a good one without it. This movie is phenomenal. I love I, it. I, I really adore this movie. Yeah. Uh, it's just very moving. It's, it's, it's passion for musical theater is right there, uh, which means it's just sort of bursting forth with all this life and all this energy and all of this love. Uh, it's espousing a philosophy of po- like devotion to poetry and to art Mm -hmm. that uh, I don't see in a lot of movies about artists, Mm -hmm. which is... uh, We kind of take for for granted in a lot of uh, like musical or biopics about artists that they are drawn to their art Mm -hmm. for reasons that we plebs will never quite understand. We just sort of have to take it for a given that they're going to keep pursuing their their dream. This we get to see how devoted they are and how much the passion is involved Mm -hmm. in pursuing something that is, at the end of the day, mostly fruitless in terms of finances.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people try their hardest Mm. and they have a lot of talent and they never make it and it's not fair, but that is fucking Mm. life,
1: isn't it? And and there's the temptation to sell out is always there. That's something that uh, Jonathan Larson fought really hard against in his work. Uh, This idea that, okay, you could get a job in advertising and I could write commercial jingles. I could do that in a second, but I don't want to. That would Mm -hmm. hurt me. And there's a a really painful scene in a, a advertising boardroom mm-hmm. where he has to sit with other people, brainstorming uh, like certain words they can use or songs they could use to describe something. And he is, you can see his soul is sort of shriveling up in this, yeah. this little brief uh, period. Um, and as such, I, I fear that a younger audiences won't connect to it. Mm. Um, I rem- I've seen a video essay about rent and how this idea, one of the pervasive ideas in Rent is these, all the characters are trying to become musicians or filmmakers and they're trying to get their art done in their way. They are are trying to create art, create art outside of the corporate system. They're trying yeah. to kind of attack the corporate system. They don't like the, the fact that advertising controls everything. So they're going to be important artists without it. And at, at, there's a point in Rent where somebody calls up and says, hey, I'm from corporate office. I'm going to buy your thing. We're going to turn it into something else and you'll make a lot of money. And they say, we're not going to do that. That's selling out. Yeah. And they're starving and they don't want to sell out. Yeah. And, uh, the person who was reviewing, uh, rent was in her twenties and she said, why are you not taking the job? We're all in financial dire straits. In fact, millennials don't understand that, that there's a, a selling... Yeah. That there's a romanticization to poverty. There's a right, there's a right, and, a, there's a right yeah. and a wrong way. Like, yeah, poverty can be romantic. Yeah. There's a right Dignity and a wrong way Dignity is to more be important successful. than financial success. How about you're just successful? Just get the job, or, get or, the money. Or
0: there's that idea that if you're successful now, you can then fund your personal projects later, yeah, which is yeah, a practical the, uh, consideration. Yeah. And, and not, not, not
1: to say that you know, it's like a mercenary attitude, money at all costs. It's mm. just that... It's, there are uh, practical th- concerns. The idea that you can choose to do art to the right and the wrong way is almost a luxury of yes. a character like Jonathan Larson, and that's
0: and that's a generational mm. thing, I think. And, yeah, well, I, that,
1: which is why I said he's a voice of Gen X yeah. and not of the current moment. I will say
0: this: the one thing, whenever I watch or listen mm. to the soundtrack to rank because you can you can the, the soundtrack is the play.
1: Like, it's, you, it's an you, opera. It's yeah, all. Yeah, there's
0: almost mm. nothing you're missing mm. if you just listen to the soundtrack from from. But you won't see the staging, but you'll get mm. the whole story. Um, I could I could sing La Vie Baume for you. I could probably sing most of it too. <laughs> um, but uh, there's the the opening segment of this is one of their friends marries wealthy hmm. and says I'm gonna like own some apartment buildings and I'm gonna give you guys you're gonna be rent free hmm. for forever. And that's a promise. So you can do your own work. And they're like, hey, this is amazing. Thank you. And then a couple of years later, the guy's like, actually, I need to start paying you rent. You're not not successful enough. Well, the guy's just like, look, look, economic realities have set in, and I can no longer afford to give you free apartments in New York City. Mm. I need you guys to start paying your rent. And the, the play treats this as you are the worst human being who ever lived. And me, I'm watching this and I'm like, he gave you how many years of free rent <laughs> in New York City? And you didn't save yeah.
1: any money that entire time? And they're still living in poverty and they yeah. talk about how they have like a hot plate that's plugged into like, the building I'm next fine, door. I'm yeah, fine, it's... but like, come on, like this guy is not a monster. He
0: gave you hmm. the best sweetheart deal ever and you're mad that it's not better? Like... He, he's not the... Tate Diggs is not the bad guy. That's my played, point.
1: played by Tate Diggs he's in like, the movie. Uh, yeah, and in the original production. I think and I the, I think the uh, character's and,
0: named Benny. Um, think uh, Benny, yeah. Yeah. But yeah the, like, uh, I have the key wanting he, to treat him as a monster, and I actually have a lot of sympathy for him. So yeah, I don't think he's I don't think he's the bad guy. He
1: should be passionate about the art, man. And well, maybe so, but... There's this general sense... not unreasonable. A general sense that I got from Gen X, and, you know, I'm... We can talk about the generations uh, at a different time, but this idea that things weren't working and we're longing for a revolution, but we don't know the nature of that revolution. We just need something to change, and we know it's not coming from the institutions we have. So it was all all about sort of attacking the institutions without having something to replace it with, and that kind of... Lackadaisical rejection of the mainstream yeah. was a big uh, defining part of it. And I'm bringing all of this up because that plays in very heavily to what's going on in Tick Tick Boom. Agreed. And where a lot of his passion and his love for living the way he does comes from. Mm-hmm. It's all this. It's all very understandable, and it doesn't feel, in this case, irresponsible or unrelatable. Uh, it might be a little dated because mm-hmm. it, does, it is set in the '90s. It's no. set particularly in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, The opening number is called 3090, which every young man is going to be using as their audition piece from here on out. (laughs) (laughs) Every young theater student.
0: I heard someone say, like, like, this is going to be the new Santa Fe from Newsies. It's just like, ah, God. It's in (laughs)
1: everyone's register. Santa Santa Fe is from
0: Rent. Well, I thought they were referring to Santa Fe from Newsies, because Santa Fe is in Newsies. Oh, I guess they're... It's a Christian Bale Both songs about Santa Fe.
1: Yeah. Open up a restaurant in Santa Fe. That's that's the one from Rent. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, there's there's a lot of uh, interesting intergenerational there. ideas about how uh, people of different uh, generations approach art and what dreams they...
0: come true. Oh
1: God, yes they do <laughs> in Santa Fe. Where does it say you gotta live and die here? <laughs> you know, um, Newsies is not a good film, but those songs. All Great music. Yeah, they're, Great all, music. they're Alan Menken songs. I like the really movie terrific. just fine.
0: The movie's okay. The movie's a little mm-hmm. underrated, but the songs are really good. Yeah. And I totally gravitated. Yeah, the, the,
1: the, the King of New York is like one oh. of those earworms that just lives in yeah, your brain. Yeah, I can remember. totally see why it
0: became a hit musical. Uh, like on stage.
1: Yeah, they, they eventually ended up adapting it to stage because yeah. those belong on stage. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Tick, Tick, Boom is is this big encapsulation of the way we view art and the way we use it and how we need to, need to use it as an outlet. hmm I, I felt every heartfelt moment of this thing. Yeah. I was right on board with it. Lin-Manuel Miranda, like, has my blood chemistry somehow. I'm amazed I it saw, took you so long to find him. Yeah, because I, I wasn't you, on, on the Hamilton train for a long time until uh, the, I saw it on Disney+. Yeah. Which was this, or no, I guess it was last year. It was
0: last year, yeah, last summer. Yeah, that
1: was the first time I saw Lin-Manuel Miranda. Now I've seen In the Heights, I've mm-hmm. seen Vivo, well, I've seen, seen this. You've seen uh, Moana, which he had done. Moana I was kind of warm on. Yeah, yeah, like, but
0: it's not really his. But like
1: I haven't seen Encanto also did the songs for
0: right. and I and I haven't seen I haven't seen in Conto yet. Unfortunately, we'll like we'll try to get that at another time. But um, I also haven't seen. He did the music for Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, that's Which I'm right, still right, mad exists, and it's not his right, fault. Right. But that's that's a Disney thing. That's not a that's not, not a that's that, not that's the not, movie's that, fault, really. It's, it's, they,
1: they hired him to write uh, Disney style songs in the style of the Sherman Brothers. Yeah, I'm sure he did great. peel Travers didn't want any of that, so it doesn't he, matter how he, good the songs are yeah, to her. the the
0: the, the, uh, the author did not want that movie to exist, and as soon as they died, Disney was mm-hmm. like, "Well, let's make it happen anyway, because who cares?" And uh, so oh, I'm still she, kind of mad that it. exists. She's dead
1: now. We'll do whatever yeah. we want.
0: But anyway, I'll, I'll maybe I'll see. it but yeah, I'll, maybe it's
1: maybe it's good. I don't know. But yeah, Lin Manuel Miranda is is my kind of theater kid. He he's a little bit older than me, but he grew up listening to a lot of the same hip hop I did. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm watching Hamilton. It's like yeah, there's Eminem. Okay, there's <laughs> Destiny's Child. Yeah, like yeah. he's all of the inspirations are like really really familiar to my ear, and yeah. uh, his his life on stage is also really uh, influencing. The life on stage in Tick, Tick, Boom.
0: Yeah. Little... I could
1: continue to ramble and gush, no, no, but I, I really, really love like It's
0: a really good double feature within the Heights, mm. uh, which you liked a little bit more than I did, but it's very good.
1: I really loved in the Heights yeah. as well. Yeah, so
0: like, it's it's a good year for Lin-Manuel Miranda. Please see this movie. Mm. It is excellent. Uh, why don't we move on? So let's talk about a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie that I didn't get a chance to see. Okay. I will before the end of the year because, you know, prominent filmmaker. I want to make sure I at least know what's mm. up. Uh, but tell me about Licorice Pizza.
1: Uh, Licorice Pizza is uh, yeah, it's from Paul Thomas Anderson. It's a uh, it's set in the 1970s. It's set in his hometown of Encino, California, and it is about a 15 year old uh, former child actor, mm-hmm. uh, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, Cooper mm-hmm. Hoffman is his name. Okay, uh, and he has a, a good sparkle and a good charm. He actually a, has a lot of screen presence. I have to feed and, the cat some treats. He's okay, very... I'll, I'll, I'll continue to describe please, yeah. uh, Licorice Pizza. Uh, He uh, instigates kind of... He starts flirting with uh, this woman who is taking his school pictures in the opening of the movie. Uh, She's played by Alana Haim of the band Haim. And Alana Haim is, like, instantly a movie star. She just has a lot of uh, strength of character and a lot of humor and... uh, Stop stop dropping things. And uh, the film follows uh, both of their kind of career trajectories over the course of maybe the next uh, year or so and how he starts to realize that his acting career has dried up and he now has to, at age 15, look for a new kind of hustle. That's the kind of life he's drawn towards. Uh, Waterbeds were just invented, so a big portion of this movie is devoted to him trying to start his own waterbed business. At 15? At age 15. Okay. And uh, the Alana Haim character, who's named Alana... Uh, is sort of roped into his his hustles because she is uh, at age 25 now going through her quarter-life crisis. She's still living at home. She doesn't have a career yet. She's a little bit adrift. And she's now met this sort of like upstart hotshot kid. And uh, she's sort of and uh, energized by his energy. Mm-hmm. She wants to sort of be be, be pulled along into his, his world. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't really have a plan because he's only fifteen. He's not really sort of thinking ahead a lot. He's just sort of uh, trying to make the hustle as good as he can. Right. Uh, and in their interaction, in their professional interaction, she meanwhile starts to uh, drift from place to place. She ends up uh, working for um, the campaign of a. a A real-life politician, uh, played by Benny Safdie, uh, Joel Wax, uh, was a a real local politician. She ends up getting involved in his his campaign. Uh, If you know Joel Wax, um, he was blackmailed because he was a closeted gay man. Uh, And that's a a plot point in this movie. Um, Oh, what is the name of... uh, Mm. Oh, she also uh, decides to, at Cooper Hoffman's assistance, starts getting into acting a little bit. She feels like she can do some acting. She ends up having a date with... uh, (laughs) He's not named William Holden, but it's William Holden. He's played by Sean Penn. What? And they have this really weird evening at a diner where, like, she ends up going on a motorcycle ride with (laughs) with William Holden. Weird. So there's all these real bits of history being folded into uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's version of Encino in the 1970s. This is a nostalgia piece through and through. Uh, Mm -hmm. The title even comes from a a string of record stores that is now defunct. uh, And, um... even though I wasn't there in Encino in the 1970s, I was, wasn't born until 78, but uh, you can tell that there's a lot of affectionate detail going into all of the backgrounds and all of the, the sort of little tiny details and the fashion and the appliances mm. and you know, the texture of the, the waterbeds and all the rest of that. Uh, and we do see after a while uh, that this is kind of turning into a romance between this 15-year-old boy and this 25-year-old woman. Uh, some people have reacted very negatively to that because yeah. of the, the decade age difference. Yeah, that's He's, a, he's a minor and she's not, and uh, there's there is sort of a romantic element, and there's a lot of jealousy when they start seeing other people. Uh, sh- she starts looking after him like a big sister, but also like kind of is is into him, and it and it does meander. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson hasn't met the editor who says no to him yet. <laughs> I wish he would I I feel like a lot of his movies would be far stronger if they had like anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes just removed somehow
0: I I, I haven't seen this one but I feel Mm. like the only Paul Thomas Anderson movies which don't have like I mean listen fat makes the steak delicious (laughs) but you don't want it to be all fat so I feel like the only two films of his that I've seen where I'm just like it's good Mm-hmm. Uh, are uh, Punch Drunk Love, which is pretty efficient, yeah, and Heart Eight, which is really underrated. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. But, like, seriously, yeah. it, I, I sometimes feel like, there's just a lot of bloat on his yeah, work. Yeah, it's like the, yeah. the
1: master is, doesn't need to be that long. I feel yeah. like um, something like Inherent Vice, a big appeal of that movie, is that it gets really distracted because the main <laughs> character is so distracted. So the fact that yeah. that one kind of That'll, goes on for a while is a little works. bit more, in a, more more appropriate. Yeah. Um, as such this one has a lot of sequences where there's a lot of like fun interesting things happening but you're just sort of living in the world for a while rather than moving toward any kind of conclusion until the end when it comes to 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 quicker conclusion oh what? um okay. there's Uh, What I I liked about this movie is sort of the changing nature of the two leads' relationship. Uh, It felt like it was kind of romantic, but more than anything, it was vocational. It was about these two Mm. people who had a very good professional relationship and a weird sort of friendship. Mm. An adult hanging out with this high school kid who was hanging out with all of these other 15-year-olds and other younger kids who were helping in this business venture. And this was the 1970s when doing these kinds of dangerous things was maybe commonplace or at least seen as... um, more appropriate than they would be seen today. A 15-year-old isn't going to start their own water be- business in, in California today. Or maybe they would. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm not... Who am I to say no? The ending puts a button on their relationship and actually defines what it is in a way that I wasn't satisfied with. Oh. Uh, and... Well, don't I, ruin I, him, I, know, I know a lot of people might disagree with that and, you know, might... Uh, say that I'm missing the forest for the trees, but what I would like to have seen is, weirdly enough, despite my complaint about his editing, more of this, where we got to see them perhaps grow up and got to see them uh, relate to each other into adulthood and what mm-hmm. were they like when they were in the present day. I wanted, I wanted yeah. to see a little bit more as to the evolving nature of a friendship I feel like rather like than what I got.
0: When you, when you make a movie mm. about childhood, particularly any childhood you can relate to, mm. um... You have two options. You can try to recreate the experience of childhood from the perspective of a child Mm. where the future is uncertain and the lessons you're going to learn are unclear. Or you can tell from the perspective of an adult telling a story about children. Mm. And you know, as an adult, wisdom that the kids do not. You know hard lessons that they haven't learned yet. You know where this is leading. You understand the structure. And you understand that in the grand sweep of their life, exactly how important the story actually is. Because when you're a kid, everything is the most important thing in the world because you haven't done anything yet. Hmm. Too often, I find that movies are afraid of taking the latter approach and coming at these stories from a place of uh, wisdom like, and experience. Yeah. And like like we're telling the story as an adult because... So we, we understand why yeah. the story is important because we're it's, adults. It's, it's not just important because it is. And that's nostalgia. That is what yeah, and that's that's exactly yeah, it. And I think that's what you're, you're describing. Nostalgia. But I think, that, I think that's responsible nostalgia. Okay. I think there's a difference between just saying, hey, remember this and saying, hey, remember this. I have a point to make about that. Mm. And I think that's the difference. Okay. And that's something that I've seen. I, I think I've seen Paul Thomas Anderson, like not Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, very different filmmakers. Uh, I was you see Paul Thomas Anderson like work both ways, mm. and sometimes more effectively than others. But mm. I haven't seen this, so I can't speak to that. I'm just speaking in terms of you know so filmmaking it's, it's, generalities. But
1: it's good. He has he has a good, rich mm. sense of atmosphere. This is the lightest film he's done in a while. Mm-hmm. I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson uh, can be funny. Oh, it'd be very Uh, funny. uh, occasionally he kind of gets bogged down in, uh, big ideas that become so big, they kind of topple over a little bit. There will be blood is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. The master is another one. There's fascinating things to discuss in those movies, but golly, there, there's way too much of both of those. Um, here he's being, he's being light and enjoyable and is clearly enjoying every bit of this (sighs) and, uh, enjoyed this part of his youth and enjoyed, uh, sort of recreating it. Um, to the point where it's not entirely alienating. You can kind of understand that passion, understand sort of how, how much he enjoys uh, and, and see how Encino was in the 1970s. Mm. Um, and that that part I really admired. I enjoyed sort of like living in sort of these atmospheres that he was creating and sort of these spaces that we don't see on film a lot. Uh, but yeah, as as the story went on, I wished that it had gone in the more interesting direction where it was already headed, rather than coming to the conclusion it did. Fair enough. Um, All right, let's move on.
0: Uh, Let's talk about uh, another film that's on Netflix. This is actually the, uh, at least the feature directorial debut of Holly Berry.
1: Yeah, I didn't see this. I really wanted to. Oh, I thought you were going to make, okay, um, okay. I'm I'm bummed. I I I thought you were going to be able to make time for it. I wasn't able to make time this week. That's okay.
0: Um, Well, all right, well, let's Hmm. get started. Uh, It's a film called Bruised, Uh, And it stars Holly Berry as an MMA fighter uh, who goes by the name of Jackie Justice. And you'd think that would be, like, her, like, you know, cool fighting name. But her actual fighting name is Pretty Bull. So Jackie Justice is her real name which is a little weird go by
1: Jackie Justice. You know, she does
0: usually yeah. but she's also the pretty bull but anyway mm-hmm. and you'd think there's there's actually this weird moment in the movie where I feel like a different filmmaker might have made this a bit funnier than it is but someone is just like um hey why did why did they call you the pretty bull and holly berry is just like well one time my dad called me that that's it <laughs> that's the whole story it's it could be funny it could Ooh. be funny in the other hands but this movie is actually very very serious um yeah, uh, she plays a an MMA fighter who was on a road to greatness. Was uh, ten and zero, just absolute, just a win streak, killing it in the in the in the octagon. And then she had a fight that went so incredibly badly. She apparently had like some sort of panic attack mm. in in the fight and tried to like flee the octagon. Like you know, it's like this big cage thing. Huh? Mm. It's, not, it's not done. Um. And it ended her career on a really sour note, and she's been, for the last few years, uh, living with her former manager, who is not great, uh, and working shitty jobs, and she hates her life. And then two things happen in the course of an evening. One, uh, her boyfriend-slash-former manager uh, takes her to an underground fighting tournament, uh, where and he says that this say, I'm not here for you I'm just scouting new talent see if I can pick up a new fighter. Mm. And uh because people recognize her there she gets egged on and then she beats the living shit <laughs> out of like the big champion of the night like in front of everybody and now like an actual major fight promoter is interested in her again. And then just when she's thinking okay well maybe my my career could get back in order and get my life back on track she comes home and her son, who she had uh, given up to her then husband or boyfriend to to just give him hmm. up, uh, is back. And her former husband or boyfriend, I forget which, uh, is dead. And the kid saw it. And the kid is incredibly hmm. traumatized. Jeez, yeah. And he's not okay. talking. And so now she has to take care of this kid who is going through a lot. She's in no position to take care of a child. She's barely could take care of herself right now. She's uh, a barely functioning alcoholic. Um, And um, over the course of the movie, she starts getting her shit together very gradually. And I appreciate Holly Berry's dedication to treating this like a character piece more Hmm. than a sports movie. Yeah. Sometimes that means the sports stuff doesn't have the dramatic traction you'd want it to, like sort of like, Push the story forward Mm -hmm. Um, But It's very very clear that what attracted her to this Was someone who was dealing with A lot of Rage issues and undiagnosed Post traumatic stress Mm -hmm. herself Eventually we find out some horrible horrible Things that happened to her as a child And She just gets pushed further and further and further To the point where She desperately has to get her life together in order to take care of this kid who she is forming a more and more of an attachment to. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's fine. (laughs) That's, that's the kind of bruised in many respects is not an unfamiliar sports type movie. The part of it that I really gravitated towards more than anything else is Holly Berry's relationship with her trainer, uh, whose name is Budokan and she's played by Shelly Atim, Okay. Uh, an I'm actor who really. I, I, I up, up on the rise. Certainly, uh, does a lot of, it's done a lot of theater, done a lot of music as well. Uh, they're in a BBC series or movie called the pale horse. Uh, they're in the irregulars on Netflix. Uh, they were going to be in one of the game of spin spinoffs, but that one was canceled. Um, Their relationship together is initially a bit standoffish because Budokan is concerned that Jackie Justice isn't going to be, you know, sort of present enough and doesn't have, like, the career ahead of her that she wants her to have. But eventually she actually starts, like, really connecting Mm -hmm. and they start having a relationship that is so much more healthy and supportive than anything Jackie Justice has ever known before. And you start, like... Sensing this like energy between them, and like you really want them to kiss, and you and you think to yourself, <laughs> this, this, this movie's not. This movie this, isn't going to be cool enough to go there. Uh, this movie is cool enough to go there. Oh, really? And it's okay. actually like that. That relationship between them uh, is difficult and harsh, and I'm not even sure I like the way it ended. But it does feel natural enough. I don't disagree with that. It. It's just like ah. Oh, that's not where I would have wanted that story mm-hmm. to go. Um, but it's really, really solid. Holly Berry is at her best in those moments where she's this tough person who's finally being allowed to show vulnerability because she's never felt safe mm-hmm. her entire life. And there's these wonderful moments with uh, Sheila a team where you realize that even though she seems like she's got her shit together, she's barely keeping it together herself. Mm-hmm. And she's like one... It's like when you're like tutoring like a kid in math and you don't remember geometries you're just trying to stay one chapter ahead so you can explain it um and you realize that's kind of some of the stuff that sheila team is going through sheila team is really really great in this movie like real breakout performance okay really excellent i want to see them in a lot more movies tv whatever i just want to see more of them they're really really great holly berry is very very strong in her performance the direction is fine it's it's a solid directorial effort. There are some... There's some ways in which the movie falls short as a sports film. Hmm. In terms of its presentation of fight. Um, in terms of... Uh, sort of keeping that fight storyline alive. It gets a little distracted by the character stuff. And then... Oh, right. We have a structure. Never mind. Uh, we gotta come <laughs> back to this. Um, and I was watching this with my partner, uh, M. Lopez de Silva. And they know more about MMA than I do. And apparently... Some of the actual MMA stuff is just not choreographed very, very well. And if you don't really know MMA, it's not going to bother you. But if you do, you might say to yourself, "Oh, that's not a thing. Or, that wouldn't happen. Or that we made that'd be a bigger deal than it was." That kind of thing. And Michelle was explaining it to me the whole way, and very, very useful to know. But it's not the it's not the end all be of the film. But anyway, it's a it's a pretty good character piece with a really standout performance from Sheila team, and it's worth checking out. It's not amazing, but it's worth checking out. All right. Um, and then, uh, let's see. Oh, and, oh, and, uh, and I saw a Ridley Scott movie. Oh yeah. Also Ridley Scott did a thing.
1: (laughs) Two films in as many months. Yeah. yeah, Ridley Scott made two films this year. First one was the last duel. I like the last duel a lot. The other one is the house is house of Gucci, which I don't like a lot. Oh dear. Did you like Uh, it more than a lot? (laughs) Is that the tease? Here's, here's, uh, here's what I need to say about house of Gucci. Um, Jared Leto is in this film and you wouldn't oh, recognize him because they give him this really wild makeup job he's got like you know put a bald cap on him and this yeah. long hair and they put him in uh, like give him a double chin and big jowls and a big mustache doesn't look anything like Jared Leto and uh, he plays an Italian character who gives this really broad like Italian stereotype guy from the pizza box accent <laughs> and he's acting better than Al Pacino um wow <laughs> <laughs> he he's the only one who seems to really key into what's going on in this movie, which is supposed to be this broad campy back, backstabbing dynasty like soap opera drama that went on in, in the actual uh, gucci fashion industry
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, if you don't know Gucci, for goodness sake, where have you been um <laughs> they do clothes. clothes. There was actually a a big scandal, you might remember this, uh, in in Gucci in the mid-90s when um, one of the Gucci's, uh, let me look up the the Adam Driver character, Maurizio Gucci,
2: Mm. uh,
1: married a a woman named Patrizia Reggiani. She's played by Lady Gaga in the movie, and in the mid-90s, after uh, some Mm. bad business and backstabbing had happened at Gucci, she ended up having him assassinated, and he was murdered and she went to jail for it. Uh, she was released from jail just recently. Oh. Um, she was known as the Black Widow during the trial. There was this big, big scandal where she had this guy killed. Okay, uh, she had her ex husband killed. Uh, and I, this I, I, is all offhand. About... I can't really say I approve, but I don't know the context. <laughs> there's a there's a context when it's okay to have your ex husband well, assassinated. Well, the <laughs> is he Darth Vader? I mean, there are reasons. Well, I you know he I can he's... understand. Adam Driver played a Darth Vader-like character. See, there you in a go, star, right? So, like, so, you're, so you're saying
0: to yourself, you know, I can mm-hmm.
1: kind of see it. Uh, yeah, this this is a, a story about how uh, Patricia Reggiani uh, met uh, Maurizio Gucci, uh, married into the Gucci fortune, and how there was this kind of rift uh, in, in the Gucci house uh, between uh, the two uh, older brothers who are running the company. They're played by Al Pacino and uh, uh, Jeremy Irons. They're all, they're all doing different accents. I don't know if they're all <laughs> supposed to be from Italy. Uh, Jeremy Irons is sort of Jeremy Irons. And how... Uh, which one of those brothers should uh, regain control of the company, how they should wrest control of the company, and how they end up having to kind of st- strong-arm the uh, Al Pacino character into sort of signing a lot of the company over into Adam Driver's hands. Um, all at the behest of Lady Gaga. Hmm. This is about Gucci. This is high fashion. This is a a huge, huge expensive industry. Mm -hmm. And this sort of details the story of how Gucci eventually fell into the hands of Tom Ford. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody, none of the Gucci family now works for or runs the Gucci company. Ah. Had to like all sell it off at one point. This needs to be Fun. This yeah. needs to be wild. These, this these people are living of, uh, outside of reality at that point, th- this right? This Doesn't needs to, to be g- like kind of this this gross Rococo uh, world of excess and opulence. It sounds like something Shakespeare oh. would do. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. that's the it, whole point of it, Hamlet. It, it are like, needs to be isolated
0: from reality and everything is huge. And... Or,
1: or it needs to be like super broad and campy which is why I say Jared Leto is the only one who kind of understands the assignment. He's the only one giving a kind of a campy performance. I would love to have seen a Verhoeven or even John Waters do something like this where they're just sort of really playing up the screaming and the hair pulling. Somebody mm. needs to fall into a pool, damn it. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't happen in this movie. Uh, Ridley Scott is not the director for Camp. He doesn't have a lot of personality when it comes to his storytelling. What yeah. uh, what Ridley Scott has as a director is good photography. Atmosphere. And good design, atmosphere. That's yeah. what he's got. And he tends to, to focus on really kind of steely, hazy visuals mm-hmm. where he likes to stage these really kind of slow... Um, like, yeah, like atmospheric interiors. I think the
0: closest he's ever come to being genuinely witty was The Martian, and that was just a good script.
1: Well, and... and not, it wasn't like
0: his telling was funny. And I, just, I liked they, The
1: Last Duel, and I think it's because of the script, and that one was written by Matt ba- Damon Ben Affleck and Nicole Holofcener. Yeah. And that's, like, they're actually trying to explore something there. The actual direction of The Last Duel is a little efficient, in fact, even though it's really Scott, and he tends to have these really kind of... Uh, well-moneyed productions and really interestingly lit and photographed interiors, doesn't know when that is and is not appropriate. And I feel like with House of Gucci, he's just sort of letting the story play when you need to be bringing some energy to it. You have Lady Gaga, one of the most ostentatious pop performers in recent pop memory. Yeah trying to play serious actress it's like no well, let's get some of that stage persona the sort of big outlandish born this way lady gaga into this performance let's get more of that crazy comic whatever the hell it is jared leto is doing in all of these other characters we have jeremy Ayers. he can camp it up I've oh he'd be hilarious
0: it. look at him beautiful creatures
1: uh, th- think of uh, Al Pacino In something like Dick Tracy You know oh, look, he can play, him, play him, Big Look at what a time
0: In Hollywood He's very funny In that movie you yeah, know? He's Weirdo I mean you can't Really talk about The film But like yeah, I, well, yeah. No comment Yeah but like But this character was arch and funny And yeah You mm. can you can do it
1: And uh, we also have Salma Hayek in, Oh be- in better, better example Al Pacino oh. Dick Tracy I just said that. Did you but, say that, Tracy? Yes, I did. Well, but, but, then thank shut you, my thank you, mouth. Uh, thank you for uh, reinforcing my idea. Well, you're um, right. <laughs> and also uh, another sort of fun element, and this is also true, is that um, the Patricia Reggiani uh, visited a psychic for a lot of her, uh, her ideas as to what to do next. Hmm. The psychic is played by Salma Hayek in this movie, and oh. they have this... Uh, weird tense scene and you can tell sama hayek hated doing this scene where they're like in a mud bath together and kind of like smearing mud on each other's faces like okay if you're gonna do that and you know you're not gonna have any kind of like sensuality to it at least have it be genuinely gross don't try to write it as if this is just an incidental place where this scene happened yeah uh, I saw a movie earlier this year called The Voyeurs, where the main character and the woman that she is spying on go out have like a spa day together. And they just they just strip with impunity in front of one another and walk around naked like people who just met each other tend to do. You know how and, it is. Yeah. Uh, I've I've learned that uh, women walk around naked in front of each other from sex comedies and porn. Yeah, those wouldn't lie to you me. Know, those, those documentaries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no. <laughs> but no, no distinct male perspective in those. Yeah. That movie knows like kind of how trashy it is, though. I yeah. actually really respect the Voyeurs. That's a pretty fun movie. Right. If if you've been missing the erotic thriller, The Voyeurs brings that all back. Got it. Uh, None of that is happening in House of Gucci. There's none of this, like, fun trashiness. Because mm. Ridley Scott doesn't know how to do trashy. Tony Scott, maybe. Oh, Tony Scott uh, do trashy. Yeah. Tony like, Scott he, embraced trash. He, he did slick, but he could also do trash. And uh, there's, there's no trashy appeal to House of Gucci. As such, it feels really sterile. Like, and it's not fun to watch. Yeah. It's just sort of going through some stagings that are kind of interesting. And we're seeing some incredibly talented actors all gathered together and not being given a lot to work with and not being uh, allowed to give the energy that I think a lot of this material requires. Hmm. So The Last Duel is the better Ridley Scott film this year. Noted. Okay. Um well all right, we got one movie left to cover. And I'm gonna ask you a and question, called, Whitney. And that's called the the the, the dog who ruined Christmas. No, what is it called?
2: <laughs>
0: I had a whole bit I was gonna do, but you just, yeah. you, just you just you just torpedoed it. Uh, it's called the Castle for Christmas. There. You happy? Did I it, had a whole bit. I was gonna lead Louis us Christmas. into it. I was gonna lead us into it. It was gonna be lovely, it was gonna be funny, mm. we we're gonna make you make you really question your perspective on mm. cinema and said, No, it's a castle for Christmas. Fuck you.
1: Uh, Put that on the poster. Castle for, Christ- castle for Christmas. Christmas. Fuck you, says William Bibiani. <laughs> Actually, that's that's that would be really
0: that would be really misleading because I actually found this movie rather cute. Uh, okay. This is tell, the latest film me. from director Mary Lambert. Mary, wait, Mary Lambert from Pet from, Cemetery. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, <laughs> horror movies. Mary Lambert. She directed Pet Cemetery. She directed Urban Legends: Bloody Mary. She directed the deeply underrated Megapython versus Gatoroid, which co-stars pop stars Debbie Gibson and Tiffany.
1: Oh, that one, yeah I, yeah, I remember when that came out.
0: Debbie Gibson uh, plays an eco terrorist who steals uh, okay, exotic. Just, just py- stop, stop, stop! No, no, stop! Stop! You, you need you need this in your life. <laughs> I'm
2: just I am crying.
0: Debbie right, Gibson right. plays an eco terrorist who steals pythons from a research lab, not realizing that they've been genetically manipulated. So when she dumps them into the Florida Everglades, she messes with the whole ecosystem, and they become gigantic. Tiffany, uh, who uh, I believe she's a park ranger. Uh, It wants to protect the alligators in her preserve from these giant pythons, and the only thing she can think to do is to steal super steroids and feed them to the gators so that they become large, and then they will fight, have a fighting chance against the megapythons, these gatoroids. It's actually quite good. That movie knows what it is. what it is. There's a scene where Debbie Gibson and Tiffany have a food fight while quoting each other's top hits. That movie knows exactly what it is. Bless Mary Lambert for giving it Nobody to us. Nobody else
1: is around. I think we're alone
0: now. That's exactly what happens. It's a fucking Tommy James song and you know it. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Uh, a Castle for Christmas is, is her latest opus. And um, you know what? This movie's cute. This movie is a rom-com starring people in their, I think, sixties now, okay, or at least late fifties. Uh, it's uh, it stars uh, Brooke Shields and Carrie Elwes. Okay, Brooke Shields plays an author. She has written a series of successful romance novels, uh, but at the end of her latest book, she has killed off the male protagonist, or the the, the woman's the protagonist, but the main love interest that everyone mm. really liked, and she killed them. All right. And everyone's really mad. It's not unlike uh, mis- like misery. Mis- must not die. It's actually yeah. a lot like misery, where mis- everyone's like super mad about it. The opening scene is her going on Drew Barrymore's talk show, and Drew Barrymore giving her shit for this. Wait,
1: Drew Barrymore is in the movie. Drew
0: Barrymore is in the movie playing herself on her talk show. I've never watched her talk show. I've heard it's okay. I don't know. Uh and she's basically talking to Brooke Shields, and Brooke Shields is just like, yeah, no, I, I killed him off. You know, you know, people are really mad at you about it. And Brooke Shields is like, yeah, well, you know, that's, they're right, you know, but it's my book, and I thought this was the way to go. And Drew, Drew Barrymore was just like, I'm really mad at you for this. I think this stems from your personal life. I know you just got divorced, and I think you've given up on love and are just taking it out on the rest of us. And then Brooke Shields has a meltdown in which he says, I'm glad I killed Winston! You're lucky I let him die quick! I could have had him eviscerated! I could have given him mercury poisoning! And it's actually genuinely funny.
1: Well... Um. Brooke Shields, I've seen a lot of Brooke Shields movies. Yeah, she's never been a great actress, and I think she'd agree with me. On yeah, that. she's, she's uh, not. She's 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 no Bernadette Peters. Yeah, you know? she she, she yeah. has her strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows when she's appearing in weird movies. She was in movies like Freeway. Yep. freaked. So she she knows camp as well. Yeah, she's very good at camp. Mm.
0: Um, and here so she gets a little I, bit I want, of that.
1: I want to see her screaming.
0: That's a good bit. And she quickly realizes that, okay, I need a vacation or something because I'm, the, the stress of this is completely getting to me. So she decides to go visit um, the town in Scotland her grandfather was from. Uh-huh. And she gets there and she realizes that the castle that her grandfather used to work at when he was like a stable boy uh, is for sale. You know the, 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 the town is going under. The economy sucks. And Let's so she see. decides she's going to buy it. She's a very wealthy author. She can afford it. She wants to buy it. Okay. Problem is, it's currently owned by Cary Elwes, who is a Duke, but he has... It's a title only. He's, he's in dire financial straits. Okay. And um, he has a lot of pride, and he doesn't want to sell to some damn American who's probably going to like turn the place into condos or some bullshit. So he agrees to, okay, you put in a down payment that is non-refundable, and then we're going to put it in escrow, and then... You have to live there while it's in escrow with me. Not romantically, just like it's my house, but you have to live there. This is my these are my demands. I know they're unreasonable. And uh and then after that, you can if you can make it through Christmas, it's fine. But he plans to make life like really miserable for her while she's there so that she'll just want to give up and go away. And then he'll have the money and he can make it through like the next year. Um and of course, over the course of the film, they find out they they quite like each other.
1: And, they and they're alive. actually and they
0: fall in love. Mm, but, uh, and I um,
1: <laughs> bet they kiss too.
0: They do actually, in a scene that makes no sense whatsoever. But anyway,
1: makes no uh, sense that they kiss. It makes it make. Well, people, people do that. You people
0: know. do kiss. But in the scene <laughs> itself is just sort of like, um, you know, they've been at they've been bickering at each other, and they've kind of had some good moments together. But it's always been really awkward, and he's trying to keep his distance because he doesn't want to like. And then finally, she just shows up, and she was like. Putting on a dress for like to test it out For like a Christmas party they were having later And it's kind of frumpled and it's not like You know all together and then she ends up like in front Of his door with like that dress trying to Steal a shoe away from a dog who stole one of her shoes okay. And then Carrie always opens the door And is like oh hello And she's like oh hi I, this is I, I, I should go it's, whatever And I, Oh and I took the stress from the castle I hope that's okay And he's like yeah And then they just kiss and nothing is built up to it <laughs> <laughs> At all, it's the weirdest. It's the weirdest first kiss I've seen in a movie in a really, really long these, time. These are people in their fifties. It's like we don't need to. We don't need no. just
1: no beating well, around the. I want to
0: say this. That in and of itself is such a novelty, and it shouldn't be. To have a romantic comedy with people in their fifties or early sixties, mm-hmm. and they're both age appropriate. They're only like Carrie was, is I think like three years older than Brooke Shields yeah. in real
1: life. Like how old they are? Yeah, he was
0: born or... in like sixty two. She was born in like sixty five. Okay. Um... It's really nice to see a movie where two older people are in a rom-com, and they're both age-appropriate. It's weirdly uncommon, and it's really, really nice, and it's kind of sweet. 56 and
1: 59. Oh,
0: 56 and 59. Okay, so yeah. She's 56, he's 59. So yeah, they're in the early 60s. Mm. They look great. Um, Carrie Elwes gets to, like, wear a kilt and ride a
1: horse. I'm like, I'm in. They... They're attractive people. Yeah, just because they're no, in their late fifties no, no. now doesn't mean they're less attractive. No, 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 no and and
0: of, and of course not. That's my point. My yeah. point is is that these kinds of roles are often not. Available and these are kinds of the, mm. the, These are the, the This is the age range in a rom-com Where you're probably playing Someone's yeah. parent or grandparent Yeah And you get to like Tell a romantic story That helps the young people find love You don't get an entire movie Dedicated to you Living out your fantasy Of buying a castle And like <laughs> Getting to know the town Knitting circle really really well And finally finding a sense of community I do and, uh, like That's
1: actually kind of a sweet fantasy To unfold I, I do appreciate that it is about Some Like a lot of these movies Are about the bouche Yeah About the bougie bourgeoisie people uh, who have a, a lot of money to mm-hmm. throw big Christmas parties. Yeah. And, uh, g- live in these gigantic houses and live this really kind of mm-hmm. uh, what has been called luxury porn. Yeah. It's like you, you just get to see them living in luxury. Um, And their wealth is rarely addressed in those movies. Yeah. It's like, it's just sort of Take an incidental granted. part of their lives. Yeah. I I do appreciate when the wealth is brought up. It's uh, something I liked about Happiest Season. Yeah. Is that it was actually sort of a, a rift between the two main characters. Yeah. The, the, how one of them was wealthy. Um, I like that she's already a wealthy author. Yep. And decides to do so, uh, like a wealthy person thing. Yeah. Rather than just being incidentally rich all the time.
0: And I actually like that he's financially, he's he's in financial straits because... You know, it's been the family for generations. His last couple of generations pissed away all the money, and now he's just stuck with the property and nothing else. Mm. Even the upkeep he can't afford. Um, But he's also, like, both of these people are rich but principled about their money, which is kind of nice. And he talks about how, like, one of the reasons he refuses to sell the land is because it's not just the castle, it's all the land around it, and everyone in this very small town are basically his tenants. hmm And he doesn't want to give that land to someone who's going to kick him out. And, in fact, he's been giving them, like, sweetheart deals this entire time because he feels a responsibility. And he's also, like, converted some of the town to, like, wind power and stuff like that because he actually cares about the environment. Like, he's a responsible person.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And, like, when, like, Brooke Shields is, like, about to leave because things are getting bad or whatever like that, like, there's a scene where, like, Again, yeah, rom coms are often about fantasy fulfillment. Yeah. That's what they are. That's why there's so much opulence in them, because wouldn't that be nice? Well, I like it's a the, vacation for the audience. Ah, oh, I'm there. Well,
1: you know? You, you, you I want, want to have to... three
0: hunky men fawning over me, and I get my pick. You know? It's the not just dreams.
1: like having people attracted to you or fawning after you or falling in love yeah. in your life. Uh, yeah. you want everything else to be taken care of as well. Yeah. You there's want, no, this there's no means. bills in this world.
0: And one of the things I like about this is that it's even though the, the, the two leads, yeah, he's, he's in dire financial straits. He still owns a castle, hmm. you know, he's still better off than I am, you know, like, and, and Brooke Shields, again, self-made millionaire did it based on her own talent. Hmm. Good for her. Uh, but, like, there's a scene in the movie where, it's, like, things are going really, really bad. And she's, like, about to give up. And it's like, oh, I'm just going to go home. But she goes to, like, all these people she's been hanging out with at the local pub. And they have a knitting circle. And there's one moment in here where, where my partner, Lopez de Silva, said, "Nope, fuck you. And there's a bit where she goes, like, oh, I always wanted to learn how to knit. And it's like, oh, we'll teach you. And so she's going to learn how to knit with these people. And it's okay. really sweet because knitting's a really fun activity and it's really great. Um, later on in the movie, when uh, she's been there for a few months and she's learned how to knit... That's when Michelle notices that Brooke Shields is knitting the American way, mm-hmm. and not not the European way. Okay. And there is no reason they would have taught her that, <laughs> like not that's, whatsoever. That's
1: her. That's just her instinct. Sure.
0: <laughs> anyway, that's just kind of fun. But
1: but who, like who taught you how to do this? Well, it Just seemed the logical. But
0: thing. but just to lean back into the fantasy of this for a second, and to appreciate the fantasy of this for an audience member. So Brooke Shields is this world famous author who has come to this small town befriended everybody, made herself part of the community, Mm -hmm. uh, offered to take over the castle and keep it up and keep it part of the community, not turn it into some horrible thing. And then when it seems like everything's bad and she's going to go home and give up, she says, oh, and uh, by the way, I paid all your mortgages. What? She's rich. She can do that. She can. And she chooses to. And it's yeah. nice. <laughs> what a nice! Even if yeah, I'm not yeah. the star of this rom-com, my fantasy is being fulfilled. <laughs> Mary Lambert mm. knows what movie this is. <laughs> this is comfort food that provides mm. genuine comfort. Thank the you.
1: Catharsis that comes with that. Well,
0: if this movie were you made can... in the '90s, mm. it would have a slightly bigger budget. The music would be a little less, you know, chintzy and canned. The cinematography might be a little bit more resplendent, which would probably help it out a lot. And it would star, like, I don't know.
1: Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Tom Hanks
0: and Meg Ryan, Hugh Grant, and, Mm. you know, Emma Thompson or something like that. And it would be quite well remembered. Unfortunately, the movie is cheap. Mm. And the music doesn't sell it very very well And the cinematography is a little flat And some of the scenes were supposedly supposed to be Like a big ball are a little underpopulated And it just undermines it A little bit mm. But for this kind of movie This is charming And what a nice little Little treat when life is really shitty All the time <laughs> To go to this nice one where nice people do nice things And they're rich and they do things with their money That other people like Like thank
1: you <laughs> Thank you for this, Mary Lambert and company You um, did good I'm always frustrated by the uh, the endings where the rich person swoops in And like, oh, I'm going to buy the orphanage mm-hmm. like, Well, he could have done that the whole could've movie Could have done that the yeah, whole yeah. time we, we didn't have to put on a show at all We didn't have to have a well, basketball and, tournament And and, uh, and here, you know, Brooke Shields could have done that any
0: time But she was going to take over the land anyway So she mm-hmm. would have been in charge of that regardless and it's only when she realizes that Oh, I might not be able to do that mm-hmm. Okay, let's pay mortgages now Yeah Done! Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Very Uh, personal... Personally, I think it's a good time to do that. You you know there's no such thing as a benevolent billionaire. No. Because they would have solved the world's problems by now if there were. Because they could have. (laughs) At least a lot of the big ones... But, and, uh, but, so to it's, quote, but to quote Sauron I don't want to cure cancer I want to turn people into dinosaurs Yeah so
0: having a movie in which Rich people like do, do Kind of deserve it And do kind things with it And are very responsible and make the world a better place In every way um, Great the one thing that sucks about this movie And I don't mean like Okay the music's bad Whatever we, we'll all live When everything's wrapped up In a tidy little package at the end there's a final scene, but they can't decide if it's a final scene or a blooper reel because it just, it's really fucking weird. So it ends with her like. Are, are the credits
1: rolling? When the credits happens, are rolling. Then it's a blooper reel. Not necessarily. Not necessarily, right. because it starts before the credits Or or it's, a, or it's going to introduce a larger element of the well, Marvel Cinematic here, Universe.
0: Here, well, first off, they actually do incorporate characters from the Princess Switch, so the Netflix Christmas oh. Cinematic Universe is is happening, and I have no idea what the oh. fuck they're building towards, but I hope it's something, and I hope it's soon. Oh. Uh, but regardless, oh. no, it's a scene where they started off with this scene at Drew Barrymore's oh. talk oh. show where everything went off the rails, right? <laughs>
1: Come back, come Um, back, come back, come back, we're talking about this now I'm I'm lost in the abyss Alright, I'm back, I'm back We started
0: off, like, the first scene in the movie, they go to Drew Barrymore's talk show, right? And everything goes bad And then at the end of the movie, she's written a new book And she's going back on Drew Barrymore's talk show To talk about everything that's happened to her And that's the whole thing Is everyone's like, oh, that's nice, everything turned out great But It's also a lot of bloopers in it And sometimes Like, they're talking about the plot and Brooke Shields is just like, I don't know if we got married. And I'm just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do that. You can't, you, can't, you can't, like, end the scene with this scene and break the fourth wall in this scene and also make us question the reality. Not just, you know, go, huh. But, like, no, no, no. Now I don't even know what happened anymore. I thought I knew what happened, and now I don't anymore. What were you doing? Why did you think this was fun? This is just upsetting. I don't know what happened super weird anyway that's a that's a castle for christmas currently on
1: netflix uh let's I, review... I didn't see a castle for christmas you missed I, out i i clearly i did yeah hey you didn't I have guess... to see azaguchi <laughs> i kind of did because oh, i okay. was reviewing it on case oh, well, here they do fine. they do assign you a few titles
0: fine anyway let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale uh, if anyone is new the critically acclaimed scale goes thusly we review movies on a scale of C minus to C plus. The lowest the movie can get is C minus, that is below average, because an average, as you may know from school, is a C. Mm. C is average. Uh mixed bag, some good, some bad, good but just not amazing, whatever, like this middle of the road is C. Below C is C minus, and above C is a C plus. That is our highest recommendation. And that's everything from we simply like this movie and th- recommend you see it to this is the greatest movie of all time. Every, all <coughs> of those are in the C plus range. Uh, a Castle for Christmas, uh, you know what? It's a low C plus. <laughs> okay. It 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 knows exactly <laughs> what movie it is. Hmm. It gives you that movie. It'll leave you. It'll leave you feeling warm and smiley. And then the yeah, the ending is kind of weird. But like regardless, like it's still like a perfectly charming movie that knows exactly what it's doing and if you go into a castle for christmas not looking to like sneer at it but actually be like let's just watch something cozy and nice it is cozy and nice
1: I don't like cozy and nice. I like wet and uncomfortable.
0: Okay, well so did you like House of Gucci? No. Well it's, it's, it's not wet it's, and uncomfortable. I'm, I'm it sounded give, wet and uncomfortable. I'm gonna give it
1: a C. It's not a total wash. There okay. are some good performances in it. Uh it is a, an in, an interesting story. Uh it just is not told nearly as well as it could have been. Okay. Uh bruised. I'm torn because it's not amazing, but I'm
0: I'm not sure if C plus is fair. I'm gonna give it a low C plus. I'll be kind. Alright. Um it's uh it's it's for formula wise, dramatically structurally it's not great, but as a character piece for Holly Berry and, in particular, for Sheila Atim, uh, the it's it's a strong piece, okay. um, but it's not unqualified. Just I did like it.
1: All right.
0: Um, moving on, what did you use? licorice pizza.
1: Licorice Pizza, I'm also going to give a C. Um, I I understand that puts me kind of on the outside of a lot of uh, popular opinion on this one. A lot of people are calling it the best film of the year. Who's saying that? I haven't Um, heard that at all. Oh, um, Kristen Lemire really loved it. Um, I reviewed this with her on KCRW, and she called this one of her favorite movies of the year. Um, There's a lot to enjoy about sort of being awash in that nostalgia. And I can understand uh, why a lot of people are really excited about this kind of movie. But this one didn't. Uh, put itself in a put itself in a good conclusion for me. It didn't sort of yeah. come to uh, any kind of like natural uh, definition as to what the nature of the relationship between those two people, and that held it back quite a deal for me.
2: Okay. Uh,
1: so I'm, I'm going to give it a C. There's Fair. a lot of wonderful craft on display. I I think a lot of higham is great, mm. uh, but yeah, I, I feel like this is not one of the the masterworks. Okay, uh, and then tick tick boom. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies of the year. I really love Tick Tick Boom. Uh, it's a C plus for sure. Yeah, uh, and I, I already raved about it. I already raved about it. No, we, we've all been on it quite details. a while. Actually. Yeah, so you know, we, we, we talked just, a lot about I've, how. I've it's... Said why why this is yeah. so moving for me personally?
0: We, we, we've talked a lot in the past about how. Um, Negative criticism is easy because you have a lot to talk about mm. Positive criticism can often be very, very difficult Because you kind of just want to say, Look, just watch it, you'll like mm. it and I don't want to ruin it for you, just enjoy But here, I think one of the best things we can say about Tick, Tick, Boom Is that we wanted to spend a really long time Listing all the things this movie does right Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that is absolutely 100% C-plus material uh, <laughs> Sounds so weird when you put it that <laughs> way But like, sir, this is our highest recommendation It's yeah. a really, really yeah. excellent movie I don't know if it's my favorite movie of the year, but it is really damn good, and I highly recommend. Do not miss it; it is worth checking out. W- wonderful stuff. Uh, and then, lastly, Resident Evil: Welcome to Raccoon City. I think I think we both agree. It's something like a it's a low uh, C plus. It's it's a low C plus, I don't know really where,
1: where does miserable piece of shit fall because this oh is that's a, a C minus. Okay, because this film is a miserable <laughs> piece of shit. No, it's a C minus all uh, the it way. Is, yeah. It is. There is nothing yeah. fun or enjoyable about this. I, I, uh, the, I, the way it might feed into Resident Evil doesn't matter to me. No, I, again, and, I don't and, care and, it, and it shouldn't if I'm watching a feature film about like, it. If you could
0: get, if here's the deal: if all you ever wanted from a movie was to be relatively faithful to the Resident Evil games, mm. I think you're selling yourself short. You want it to be faithful and good. Yeah. yeah, that's the fantasy. It's not just like, oh, well, they gave me it's accurate, so I'll give
1: it a pass. No, or how about it needs to be competent? Like it needs to tell ju- the story well. Just be competent. I, 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 and it, and, I would and, rather and 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 fealty is incidental well, my point or is this. an extra bonus if you well, get
0: it. Again, my 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 overall point is this: competency is is the bare minimum. That's hmm. that's not even. That's a low bar. That's it. That's not even a low bar. That's just the bar. <laughs> All right. We want more than competent. That, that you is want the bar be, you
1: must clear. You to make want a it, film. You
0: want it to be legitimately good. Um, if it can do that and give the fans like what they want, which is more fealty to the games, great. Um, if you can't do that, then you're. What, what's the point here? Hmm. Uh, this is a this is a big missed opportunity. It nothing about it really really works. Again, I think some of the cast comes away completely unscathed. Uh, it's definitely not their fault, uh, but the movie is extremely poorly told. It's extremely poorly
1: shot. Um, it does it's, not work. Which is an odd thing to say about a major studio release. I mean, yeah, usually, even, they're even competently bad, photographed. You know, even right? bad movies are, are pretty well photographed it's, these days. Again,
0: if, if I have to go out of my way. To talk about a film's cinematography And I'm not glowing about it Mm. It's bad (laughs) Like that's the sort of thing I shouldn't have to talk about Unless it's great
2: Mm. Because
0: competency is considered The baseline minimum We're all expecting right Yeah Weird Weird (laughs) <laughs> and this is and then for the record, this is Johannes Roberts who's made several movies I really liked. Oh, well, he he did um, Forty Seven Meters Down, which, which is, is a solid thriller.
1: A, a, a you know low budget, but yeah, oh quite very good. low budget, yeah. but
0: no, no, but like really atmospheric and like a lot of tension. Uh, the sequel not as good, but a fun watch. Um, I know you liked The
1: Strangers Pray at Night. I think that this, sequel, yeah, I actually really liked The Strangers Pray at yeah. Night. Yeah, um, little story about Johannes Roberts. Um, he introduced the film at the screening I saw. It was on on the screen, yeah, pre yeah. recorded introduction, and um, he filmed it at his home, and mm. he filmed it like clearly like in his office, like the introduction not the movie. Yeah, the introduction yeah. is like, "Hey, there's my movie. I hope you like it," and um, and uh, maybe we can come back or loop around after this and do one of these things at the end of the movie so you can ask me why I have a Ghosts of Mars poster on my wall, and sure enough, <laughs> right behind him. So he he has an, an appreciation yeah. for trashy movies because yeah. Ghosts of Mars is i uh, I'll say it a lesser John Carpenter film, sure, uh, with with interesting trashy premise, mm-hmm. western on Mars, and instead of uh, like a, a hoarding gang of bad guys, it's like goth ghosts, yeah, from within it, the Martian. And the core. movie has ambitions. Uh, yeah, fun ideas, really badly executed. Not a good movie. Uh, so, he he has the trash gene. Yeah. I, I don't know. But he I, just made a bad film. I would I would love to interview him
0: about this movie, and I would love to interview him in a position where we could be kind of candid. Mm. It's hard to do that on, like, a press tour when you're trying to sell the movie. I would love to interview him about this movie and just be like, hey, what happened here? Because yeah. I know you've made good movies, mm. and I can't... I would be very surprised if you're 100% satisfied with this. Yeah, And if you are, I really want to talk about what you were going for, because I don't get it. And if you're not, let's talk about what happened because I'm very, very curious because you clearly have talent and this didn't come together very well. I would love to have a frank conversation with him about that. Uh, but, yeah, um, what are you going to do? Um, anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Network, And over at our Patreon, we have a lot of exclusive shows. We talk about things like every single episode of Star Trek ever made. Every single episode of 1960s Batman. We do commentary tracks. We do hangouts every month. There's a lot of stuff over there. We're very, very grateful to every single one of our patrons, without whom none of our shows, including the one you're listening to right now, which is is ostensibly free, uh, none of them would be possible. Hmm. Thank you to our patrons. You keep the lights on. We're very, very grateful to you. Uh, If you want to join in the conversation, there's a couple of different ways you can do that. We're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibbiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, but the best way to do it is to send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode? You want to talk about anything else you're interested in? You want to find out more about us, more about our taste? You want recommendations for things? You have questions about the industry you want to ask? Please go right on ahead. Email us there. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We also, in case anyone's, you know, feeling a little, feeling a little uh, uh, nostalgic for the old pen and paper days, <laughs> you can also write us a letter or send us anything else you want at our PO box.
1: Hmm. What's our PO box, Whitney? Uh, you can yeah send it to us at the Critically Acclaimed Network PO Box six four one five six five. Los Angeles, California, 90064.
0: And of course, I remind you that the holidays are upon us. And if you're looking for, uh, you know, some treats for the fam, uh, you can head on over to Salt Cat Soap. Salt Cat Soap is our Etsy store run by myself and M. Lapis De Silva. Uh, You can find links on our social media pages at Salt Cat Soap on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. But also just look for Etsy, all one word, Salt Cat Soap. We design and sell uh, uh, handcrafted soaps. And uh, we, we sell them. And uh, we've actually reached a pretty decent uh, number of people in our first year. We're cutting up on our first year of having that store. And um, it means a lot to us that people have actually like enjoyed our soaps and our reviews have been really, really great. And um, I know, we hope more people get to enjoy them. So please check that out. If you have any interest, we would love to have you there. Um, and um, I guess that's it. That. That's that. Okay. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone's a Critic.
2: Oh, I'm sorry, what?